welcome to the ALC Pan-African Radio's public debate program. This program engages experts and an invited audience to discussions around cross-cutting issues on peace, security and leadership in Africa. If an EMB is doing its procurement wrong and doing it illegally, then what, why do we think it will not steal votes? If it can steal in procurement, it will steal votes. That's, the answer is the same. The third thing is that I think we must start defining these results that happen in Kenya, that happen in Zimbabwe, by the real terms. That these are civilian coups. They are coups. Elections have been the usual mechanism by which citizens of a country democratically elect officials who represent them. During elections, citizens are able to exercise their rights and freedom to choose whoever they would like to govern them. But recent events in several African countries have seen many electoral processes lack integrity and credibility, which has made voters question the value and relevance of the process and even contemplate whether they need to vote at all. In this program event, titled The Futility of Elections in Africa, with a focus on Kenya and Zimbabwe, various scholars with wide knowledge of elections discuss the relevance of election processes in these two countries. The event, which was organized by the African Leadership Center and the African Center of Open Governance, brought together Tawanda Chimhini, from Election Resource Center in Zimbabwe, Glenn Mpani from Chicamo, Africa, Willis Otieno, an advocate and elections expert from Kenya, and Professor Karuchi Kanyanga from the University of Nairobi. In the discussion, the scholars and the audience debated the importance of elections as a means of consolidating democracy in Africa and why, despite regular elections, there has been a lack of real change. The discussion began with remarks by Gladwell Otieno from the African Center for Open Governance, who moderated the event, an introductory statement by Shuvai Nyoni from the African Leadership Center. Good morning, everyone. Um, first of all, I'd like to apologize for the late start. Um, but And we're still expecting... Uh, Professor Karuti Kanyinga, he's on his way and uh, he'll be here soon. Uh, so we'll start and uh, he'll join us uh, hopefully before long. Um, let me introduce myself. My name is Gladwell Otieno and uh, I am from the Africa Center for Open Governance, which is one of the co-conveners of, uh, of this event. We're convening it together with the African Leadership Center, um, which is based in Nairobi and also in London at King's College uh, London and uh, works with the University of Nairobi. Um, and we're working together to, to hold this, uh, this dialogue on, uh, on elections in Africa. Uh, and really focusing on Zimbabwe and Kenya because, um, like most of you, we've really been closely following. After, uh, after our traumatic last year, from which we're still recovering, um, uh, we've been following the Zimbabwean uh, um, elections with very, very close attention. We, of course, followed the events of Mugabe's ouster 
some were euphoric, some were uh, suitably uh, cautious, uh, and not quite as, uh, as euphoric as others, but still, um, after the disappointment we'd had with our elections, we sort of seemed to gain a bit of hope when we saw the, the unexpected ouster of Mugabe, and then not long after that of um, the Ethiopian uh, Prime Minister, his name Desaleng. Yes, uh, and so it seemed to be, uh, you know, uh, a spot of hope in a very dark landscape. So um, we, we, at short notice, said, why don't we invite people from Zimbabwe so they can tell us about what happened there and we can compare with our elections because following on Twitter and on social media, it was really uh, striking, the similarities in the issues which were arising were, were really striking, as if there's a playbook out there uh, to, that's being followed by um, uh, our sort of newfangled despots who've sort of understood that, uh, yeah, elections, sure, but, uh, you know, they don't necessarily have to mean anything. So um, this is why we, we came together. So um, just as Africans and, and looking at events around the region and in Africa as a whole, uh, you know, wondering, you're, okay, we've been fighting this struggle for so long and we keep on getting these same bad results. So really what's the point, yeah? What is the point? And like many of, in the African electorate, uh, we, we, you know, we echoed that feeling of, uh, of uh, skepticism uh, and loss of hope in terms of uh, what we can achieve uh, in terms of counting on, on, uh, uh, on our models of democracy to achieve change and to really... Um, and to really uh, have the citizen determine or have a role in determining what happens to uh, his, her life. And this uh, skepticism is not limited to Africa. It's obviously something that, is, um, that we've seen around the world. Um, as, as new movements have and new parties or new formations have come to power using, using new methods um, and, and, and really being able to communicate, using new technologies to communicate with the populace and, and, uh, and, and capture power. But still, at the same time, a, a, grow, a growing rise in, in, uh, in authoritarianism, even in those countries which regarded themselves as the bastions of democracy and uh, as having a right to lecture to the rest of the world um, as to what democracy is. So obviously some of our dismay is colored with a bit of uh, amusement and uh, what the Germans call schadenfreude. I don't know what the uh, English word is. It's um, joy at somebody else's discomfort <laughs> when we look at some of our... Uh, these Western best bastions of democracy behaving like some of the most laughable uh, autocracies and banana republics. Um, while that may be amusing, of course, it's actually uh, a very dangerous uh, for, for, for the world and for the efforts of various um, people, 
especially here in Africa that we're focusing on, to actually attain the life that they think they should have as citizens of their countries. So this is what uh, brought us together. And um, given the commonalities between Zimbabwe and Kenya, we were very happy to be able to welcome colleagues from Zimbabwe who agreed at short notice to come and tell us about what happened there. We really do want to know what happened, what went on, what, uh, you know, from the pre-elections pre to the election day to the post-elections now to the petition. And we Kenyans, of course, as you Zimbabweans will know, have had our experiences of petitions. And we in civil society have uh, mounted our own uh, petitions as well, um, both times unsuccessfully. Uh, so, so we have an interest in knowing what happened, at the same time understanding the similarities, but not being blinded to the differences. And then having the discussion about, so where do we go from here? What is it that we really want? Um, are we going to keep on lining up in, you know, waking up at 4 a.m. to go and line up the whole day while our elections get stolen from us in some back room somewhere after we've spent billions and billions and billions on, on the most sophisticated technological developments, on the most uh, sophisticated equipment, on, you know, I mean, we've, you know, the ordinary people have become experts in things like biometric voting and, uh, you know, this form and that form and that feature and the other, and all of it seems to have come to naught. Indeed, it seems to have um, mainly offered an opportunity rather than securing credible elections, it's offered an opportunity for theft and corruption of the, of the most, uh, you know, of the highest magnitude. So, um, uh, I, uh, you know, this is, uh, this is why we're here today to talk about these issues. We have a concept paper in the folder, and um, uh, it will tell you basically uh, what it is we want to focus on about the rise in what, we, what has been called electoral authoritarianism, where, um, where uh, elites, political elites, have mastered the motions and learned how to subvert the substance uh, and confer uh, a dubious legalism on themselves. Um, and how we're going to deal with that. Are we going to ask, are we going to keep on tinkering at a technical level uh, with systems in the hope that we can ratchet up controls and, and we, Kenyans, we Kenyans like to use the word burglar-proof our elections uh, you know, put more and more and more, uh, ring fence our elections more and more from, uh, from the thuggery of our political elite? Or are we going to ask more fundamental questions and say, why bother? Why do we do elections at all? And if we do them, why do we do them in this way? Uh, are we going to line up again in 2022 and, uh, and vote like sheep in order to have our... <laughs> Our, um, our vote stolen once more. Uh, so um, I, I hope that we can, we can look at these questions. We can look at the role of institutions, the role of electoral management bodies, the role of the security sector, um, 
both in Kenya and in Zimbabwe, the security sector and its different factions and divisions and even the informal, sort of the use of informal uh, militia, which uh, I think was a feature of the Kenyan um, elections and may well also have been a feature of the Zimbabwean elections. So uh, I hope we'll be able to have a very open conversation about that today because we want, as Africans, to be able to go forward and have an open and innovative conversation about democracy, about elections, about, you know, how do we want to, to um, choose our leaders? What kind of leaders do we want? Um, what kind of, you know, structures do we want for our power? We've tried so hard to institute new constitutions, and yet they haven't... Uh, uh, yet they haven't brought about uh, liber uh, liberation or we'll do that in a minute, James. Um, um, sorry. Uh, you know, we've all worked at, at, you know, building the greatest new constitutions. The Kenyan constitution is absolutely, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's got some weaknesses, but it's really in, internationally uh, a sort of uh, model. Of a, of a progressive constitution. So here we are, we've done all of these things, we've made laws, we've tried to tighten up our systems and yet we come out with the same uh, bad results. So I hope that we can be very open. We have a Twitter handle, we've called uh, the hashtag why vote. Um, and I would uh, just ask that um, we bear in mind that we have colleagues from Zimbabwe who have to go back there so that when we're, um, that we're, when we're tweeting, we, we, I think, should uh, be mindful of that. Um, even though um, the colleague himself was uh, <laughs> sort of, uh, well, you can tell when people are used to being in the trenches, but I think we don't want to add to, uh, to, uh, to any issues that they may have to face. So let's keep that in mind as we, as we tweet. If we quote anyone directly, please try and be uh, responsible in the way that you do, if you do quote them, and it would be preferable uh, possibly if, if, you, if you didn't. But don't feel restrained, please. Uh, we want a conversation to go on. I noticed on Twitter that, uh, that Zimbabweans were saying, yes, you know, we want to have a, f a meeting like this as well. Uh, tell your colleagues to come and have that meeting in Zimbabwe. And we're saying we would love to come. Uh, we would really love to come to uh, Zimbabwe and, and share our experiences. And of course, we're mindful of what's going on in Uganda next door with the attack the brutal attack and torture of Bobby Wine, uh, the um, Ugandan MP and others. Uh, so this is a, this is a really um, a live, uh, live subject as we go on. And I've, I've seen also on Twitter that um, the Togolese civil society is convening in Ghana to try and get Ghana civil society to be more mindful and more involved in what's going on in Togo. So this is going on around, around the, the continent, not just, uh, not just in our two countries. So we hope that this is a discussion that can expand. Um, I'm very happy to see that Professor Karuti Kanyinga has joined us. So um, without further ado, I'll just introduce um, the next speaker. To welcome us, uh, I'd like to uh, ask Shuvai Nyoni, uh, 
Executive Director of the ALC to come and welcome everyone. Thank you very much. Um, thank you very much, Gladwell, and uh, good morning to you colleagues. Um, my job is to welcome you here and to thank you very much for joining us this morning and at such short notice for what I believe um, will be a very rich uh, and interesting discussion. Um, I'd like to welcome our colleagues from Zimbabwe who have joined us and our two Kenyan speakers who agreed again at very short notice to, to join us for this, um, for this panel discussion. Um, as Gladwell has mentioned, my name is Shivai Nyoni, the director of the African Leadership Center uh, based here in Nairobi. The ALC is also based um, at King's College London as an academic department in the School of Global Affairs. Um, and we are essentially a, an initiative that um, incubates what we believe will be the next generation of African leaders in the area of peace, security, and development. And we um, do that through training young people from across the African continent, in particular approaches to leadership, um, to understand uh, contemporary peace, security, and development challenges on the continent. And so you'll see in the room we have a few people from the ALC, people who have both who work at the ALC, but also people who have been trained um, by the uh, by the ALC. Um, one of the one of the things that we value at the African Leadership Centre is African-led ideas, youth agency, and we do this by um, uh, encouraging um, the generation of knowledge um, through, again, as I say, African-led thinking and African-led ideas. The young people who come through the doors of the ALC bring with them their own uh, lived experiences of conflict, of insecurity, of various development challenges. And what happens at the ALC is that they are taken through various programs that help them to begin to articulate those lived experiences in a language that is... Um, that is uh, translatable to a variety of audiences, including an academic audience, policy audience, as well as uh, practitioners. Um, and so uh, in, that, in that light, we have a 10-year research agenda at the African Leadership Center. We are a generational, um, we're, we're a project of a generation. And so uh, to accompany that, we also have a research agenda that um, goes in 10-year cycles. And at the moment, we've just started, we're at the beginning stages of a new 10-year research agenda that looks to understand the state of the state in Africa. So trying to understand the state in Africa as it is and not how it ought to be. Um, and of course, there have been many studies, there are a lot of theories on, on the state on the continent of Africa. But what we intend to do through this uh, research agenda is to understand a variety of things. And so this uh, particular conversation today where we are asking, is there... Um, I have elections uh, run their course as a, as a means for uh, consolidating democracy on the African continent? Is there a reason for citizens to continue uh, voting? Falls very neatly within our research ad agenda and trying to understand what we have um, in, and not what we ought to have. Because what we have, um, and in the, in, in the case of our two case studies today, are elections where the people the citizens, the electorate, don't seem to be at the center of, of, of those elections. They are not the main, the main, um, they are not the main beneficiary of those two of those two elections. And so, this raises a number of leadership questions for us that we hope our speakers today will be able to will be able to respond to. 
Um, and really, the leadership question we're looking at is whether or not political, the political class, whether this is the um, incumbent uh, governments or whether it's oppositions, really have um, uh, mutuality with the cross-section of citizens that they claim to represent. And therefore, as Gladwell has said, will people vote in 2022 in Kenya? Will people vote in 2023 in, um, in Zimbabwe? So we really hope that this dialogue will assist us in, in answering some of those questions. Um, and we, we look forward to a policy paper or two coming out of this conversation. We have um, colleagues from both AFRICOG and the ALC who, who are taking notes and will be putting together um, a policy paper or two uh, reflecting some of the conversation in the room today, and that will be made available to those of you who are here um, as, as, as it becomes ready. But we hope this is the beginning of a conversation. Um, we, we've had uh, elections uh, in Mali, uh, a runoff that happened over the weekend. We have uh, elections coming up in Nigeria and other countries um, across the continent. And so this question, we, we are quite certain, will remain um, relevant. So thank you so much, uh, Gladwell, and thank you so much for being here. And we look forward to uh, wonderful discussions. Thank you. Thank you, Shuvai. So I'd now like to invite the panelists up to uh, take a seat um, at the front table. Um, Glenn, Glenn Mpani, Tawanda Chimini, I think yeah, you can see your... Willis Otieno and Professor Karuti Kaninga. Uh, sorry, it's very, it's a bit cramped. Can I move this? Okay. Good. Uh, so just. Um, as they sit down, I'd like to introduce uh, our guests. Uh, Tawanda Chimini um, has been the executive director of the Election Resource Center uh, in Zimbabwe since 2010. Um, his experience also includes work with the Zimbabwe Election Support Network. And um, uh, Tawanda is one of the country's foremost organizers known for mobilizing voter participation and monitoring elections. The ERC, the Election Resource Center, has been at the forefront of uh, advocacy efforts in Zimbabwe for credible uh, elections. Glenn, Glenn Mpani, our other guest from uh, uh, Zimbabwe via <laughs> South Africa, uh, he's a de democracy and governance practitioner with 15 years of experience uh, in this area in Africa. Um, he has experience with the Public and Parliamentary Support Trust, the Institute of Democracy in Southern Africa, the NDI, uh, Open Society, Institute of Southern Africa, and the African Legislatures Project, amongst others. Uh, our Kenyan guests... Um, in the center next to Tawanda is uh, Willis Otieno, who many of you will know. Uh, he is an advocate and, uh, and elections expert who has uh, often worked with us uh, in the past um, and has contributed to policy documents such as um, 
on the, on the table at the back, you'll see various publications from uh, the Africa Center for Open Governance. The Rethinking Electoral Management uh, Report was largely uh, um, from, by, by Willis. Uh, Willis has also worked closely with uh, uh, the opposition uh, coalition in the last elections. And last but definitely not least is Professor Karuti Kaninga of the University of Nairobi, um, based at the Institute of Development Studies, which is also a partner uh, of the African Leadership uh, uh, Center. And um, uh, Professor Karuti Kaninga is, is uh, well known. He's a prominent academic, a prominent expert in governance and democratization affairs. He has published uh, widely. Um, he was also uh, a, a uh, uh, he also leads the South Consulting Company, which advised and supported the Kofi Annan-led uh, mediation uh, effort in um, I I after the 2008 uh, elections. Uh, so. Um, uh, Karuti has uh, also just come from Zimbabwe. He was observing the elections there, and as an electoral expert and a political scientist with a broad range of expertise, I think he will be very well placed to, to contextualize the issues for us. Um, we're going to start the program with Glenn, as you can see from your programs. Glenn is going to give us the broader context of the, of the developments in uh, elections in Zimbabwe, looking at patterns and trends from 2000 to uh, 2018. Um, and moving from that broader context, we'll now hone in on the, on the 2018 harmonized election in Zimbabwe, um, which will give us a bird's eye view of the whole electoral cycle um, from the pre-election uh, to uh, the post-election and now um, um, going into a petition in, um, you know, next week, I think on Wednesday. Uh, after that, we'll have an opportunity to have a comparative view with, uh, with a contribution from Willis, uh, Willis Otieno on, um, on the Kenyan and Zimbabwean electoral cycles largely focusing on 2017, but also referring where necessary to the 2013 and 2008 uh, elections. Um, we will then close with, um, with uh, Professor Karuti Kanyinga as a discussant, giving uh, us a broader view of the relevance and utility of electoral processes in Africa and issues that we should be considering as an academic and policy community. So I would uh, now like to begin by inviting Glenn to uh, address us. And in, just before we began, I was very happy to hear from both Glenn and Tawanda that they don't do PowerPoint, but they speak from the heart. And we're, we're very happy to to, uh, to hear that. So I would now invite uh, Glenn, please, to come and talk to us about understanding the Zimbabwean electoral context, patterns and trends from 2000 to 2018. Glenn? Well, 
you're speaking from the heart, you might need some room for movement. <laughs> Let me start by apologizing to the participants. I'm not responsible for having a panel that has got all mail. I think uh, this should have been uh, this should have been resolved, and uh, I would like to say, you know what? It's unfortunate. I, I, I think <laughs> I think they're very capable Zimbabwean women or people who have worked on Zimbabwe that could also be able to dilute the panel. So uh, uh, let me apologize so that at least I know there are some ladies in the room who will start by shooting at that. So let me disarm them <laughs> before we start the, the conversation. Right. Um, let me honestly to be sincere, yes, I, I, I alluded to the fact that I'm going to speak from the heart because I think it, it's very important when we are discussing issues of elections to to try as much as possible because we've got a professor here, he will do the academic work. I think what we'll try to do is to speak in terms of what we think and um, my observations. First and foremost, when, when I saw the question to say to vote or not to vote, have elections in Africa become an exercise in futility? The question seems to presuppose that there is a sense that um, somewhere, somewhere, someone is tired of elections. They have failed. And when that question is posed, it basically means that they have failed to play a role as a means to alternation of power. Because elections are a tool in citizens and in voters. One, to hold public officials accountable. Two, to ensure that once in a while you are able to get the leadership that you want. When that two has failed to do that, as citizens we get into a mode where we start asking ourselves this question. But I think we also need to reflect on how citizens have participated in public life. I think the challenge that we have in Africa is that we have narrowed participation only to elections. Why have we narrowed participation to elections? Because on the hierarchy of participation, elections are the simplest format that enable citizens for once to express themselves. There are limitations in citizens petitioning. There are limitations in citizens communing. There are limitations in citizens participating in protest. And therefore, ceremonially, once after every five years, six years, or seven years, depending on the country, citizens take it as an opportunity to say, for once, I can do this. But unfortunately, the lowest level of participation that is available and that is easy is now confronted with a number of challenges where we are now forced to question whether it still has a role and a function. I'll ask the next question. If elections are now futile, it's not because of the citizens. It's because of the actors. And last night I was laughing with a friend uh, when I was reflecting on this. And I was saying, if you have got an area where there are thugs that are harassing you in that area, and you decide to move to another area, does it stop the thugs from coming to that area to harass you? It does not. They will simply come to that area and continue harassing you. So your solution is to deal with the thugs. 
So if we decide to say we are no longer going to use the election as a means or as a form of participation, or we are saying they've lost their value in terms of playing their function in role, don't think that the same people who are harassing us will not move to that mode of participation. They will evolve and use that as a means of addressing a problem. So in my view, I'm going to pause, I'm going to raise certain issues about trends in Zimbabwe that just show you that the nature of our conversation needs to reflect on this. I don't know why they asked me to start from 2000, because Zimbabwe attained independence in 1980. But I'll make assumptions on why they said that should reflect on trends and patterns from 2000 to 2018. The assumption from the question is that from 2000, this is where Zimbabwe had active multi-party politics with the emergence of the main opposition coming from Labour. That is the assumption. Secondly, the assumption also is the constitutional reform process. That's where it took place. So, for example, the emergence of uh, the National Constitutional Assembly. But in my discussion, I'm going to look at three trends that define, and these apply even to Kenya or any other country. The first has to do with a pattern of fractured not institutionalized political parties, both ruling and opposition, across from 2000 to 2018. First problem on the ruling party, we have a ruling party that was failing to transform in terms of it evolving from a liberation movement, a one-party state, and it trying to adapt to demands of a democratic state. ZANU-PF struggled as a party. I think if there's any conversation that we don't have is there have been demands for ZANU-PF to transform internally. I don't know whether anyone has ever asked them to say, do you know how you can change? Because ZANU-PF on its own failed to change. They failed to deal with internal leadership problems. They failed to deal with the culture that is centered around centralized power. They failed to democratize they even failed to accept the emergence of internal leadership from people who were not in the liberation movement. They even failed to depose the founding father leading to a coup. So ZANU-PF struggled from 2000 to 2018. Look at the opposition. The opposition also equally failed one to institutionalize into a party. The MDC remained a movement which means that the, MDC, the opposition, like in any other country, remained rally-based, no grassroots structures that can effectively ensure that the party grows. I always argue that uh, if there is any political party, even up to today, that I think is very organized in ZANU-PF, they built social capital. That is very important when someone wants to go and vote. These people who attend rallies, you don't know why someone would attend a rally. You know, I want it's on a Sunday, I don't have anything to do, it's in the rural areas. Then they hear that, you know what, there's an event. And you know, the, the tricks that MDC plays, they're very exciting, eh? 
So we say, ah, so let's go and today we are there for two hours. We celebrate. And then we come out and say, we've got people on the ground. Most of them, they are not registered. Most of them, they don't identify with the party. And so that's the reality of opposition politics. Third, the opposition brought together individuals. And, and, and I say this with all due respect to my colleagues. There are some of the most incompetent people that surround some of these most op- opposition movements. Simply because it becomes a career. It becomes a way of life. It's commodified. It's a way of living. You want to survive. So you associate with that. You transfer incompetence into what is supposed to be an alternative. So in essence, I know most of you might not say it, but if an opposition in your country tomorrow will say they are going to rule, you all cringe. Because you are starting to ask, say, who is going to be doing this? Are they going to manage? And it's a reality and it's a fact. I know so many of my colleagues who will not say it in public. Who say, hey, I'm voting for them, but hey, so if they win, what is going to happen? So it's a fact, but it's an issue to say we want to remove this. So opposition is surrounded by a number of incompetent people. Thirdly, they don't have an institutional base in terms of running the party. So this has been the pattern that we expect an alternative to win, but it's not structured effectively. We can you look at the Uganda case, we can look at the Zambia case, we can look at the Zimbabwe case. All op- the only opposition political party that I have noted that is run effectively is the DA in South Africa. And I wish people would go there and learn. There might be reasons why it's run effectively. It's, no, 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 we're not talking about the politics, you are. We're talking about administratively. <laughs> Let's not talk administratively. The DA is run effectively. And, 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 and you... <laughs> right. The second trend is elite capture. This has been the conversation that this is, has been the pattern of Zim politics. People go and vote, but ultimately their vote becomes a discussion for elite to parcel and distribute power. So the efficacy of a vote is eroded because ultimately people are talking about let's dialogue. Even now as we are we're talking about the problems in Zimbabwe election, it ultimately gets to the dialogue. And the players are the same politicians who have failed. So if you look from 2000 up to today, it has always been about the elites deciding at the end of a vote. So the question is, why should I vote? When elites ultimately decide. This court case that we have right now, the Zimbabwean problem is not going to be resolved in the courts. I was discussing with Shua here, these possible scenarios. Let's say it's nullified, which I doubt it's going to happen. It's a crisis for the opposition. Let's say they call for a runoff. It's another 60 days for people to think through what they are going to do. But chances of the opposition getting it after 60 days are very slim. Let's say ZANU-PF gets in. Yeah, but they are not going to govern effectively on their own. So it's going to go back to the dialogue. The elite capture the space. The third trend is an unworkable institutional structure. I think we need to accept one thing that is that 
you know, I know the number of uh, callings we have written about this, us inheriting colonial structures, implementing them. I think we need to seriously look at the structures that we're using and how effectively we have had unworkable structures. Let's take, for example, independent election management bodies. We all call them independent. But the structure and how they function, they never serve the interest of ensuring a free and fair election. But we also forget that there are human beings that work in those bodies. You know, I tried to imagine someone in an election management body in Zimbabwe. Surely do you expect that person to be fair? When the country is being run by the military and the person wants to go home and you are saying, give me a free and fair election, let's be practical. Would you do it yourself? Would you announce that this election has been rigged? We need to be practical. The judge right now, who is reading the papers and seeing the anomalies, you actually expect him to stand up and say, yeah, you rigged this election, I'm going to... You need to be practical about these things. You need to fix the apparatus of a state that has always been military. And part of the problem in Zimbabwe is that the security has played a very pivotal role in our politics. Pre-2000, they were in the background. Now post, they are on the forefront. After the coup, they are the ones who are running the affairs. I've argued many times that I don't understand the logic of Zimbabweans to assume that a military government can run a free and fair election. I also don't understand that. I've also argued that how do you think that after you've committed a treasonous offense in seven, seven months ago, you would gladly say, it's okay now, I want to end over power without guarantees of security. Who does that? So I think there's a certain level of, I think it's deliberate naivety on what potentially could take place. So for me, these are the trends and patterns. We should not, in my view, blame the electoral process. We should look at these areas, political parties, elite capture, the dysfunctional structure is the source of the problem. An election is just an outcome of what is not working. To conclude my thing, should, should people continue voting or not? Because I think that's a very important question for me. I, I don't even think we should answer, we should, we should attempt to deal with that question. I think we should stop taking people for elections unless we have resolved what is limiting their form of participation. Once we deal with what is limiting their form of participation, then we need to be able to take them to an election. Very true what Shuvai said at the beginning. Chances are next elections, people are not going to vote. And there is a very good argument that is uh, uh, that talks about uh, exit and voice. Professor, you can help me because you read most of these views, that when citizens are tired, they either voice or they exit. And they exit in two ways. Either they decide to physically leave areas where they are getting uh, harassed, or they look for alternative methods of survival. And I think this is what is likely to happen in these two countries and in any other jurisdiction. So, Thank you so much. I think that's all I have to say.
Thank you so much, uh, Glenn, for that uh, um, introduction and uh, that trenchant introduction and a bit of uh, countries where we can speak of, of real rooted political parties. And uh, it was a salutary reflection on our opposition parties and their capacities and their internal democracy, which uh, we also, uh, you know, um, can, uh, can see in, in Kenya and in other countries. Uh, the issue of elite capture of institutions and, um, you know, the uh, naive expectation that institutions which are captured by the elite in a situation of impunity, that their, uh, that their personnel would have the courage to, to um, confront um, regimes which have shown that they were really not shy away from uh, the most uh, brutal violence uh, to protect their position. And I think it's very interesting that, uh, that Glenn is uh, saying we should perhaps declare a moratorium on elections until we have resolved issues. I think that's something most people will want to come back to. And the issue of exit and voice, whether physically or even internally, psychology, uh, psychologically, etc., uh, of how citizens will respond to this continued uh, lack of opportunity to participate is something that, uh, that um, you know, will probably come up in the de debate, especially when we look at issues like devolution, where in Kenya, where you can exit from national questions to, to you know, try and have a greater impact at the, at the local uh, level. Um, I would now like to call on Tawanda, uh, Tawanda Chimini of the Election Resource Center to uh, come and share with us the experiences of, uh, of this year's uh, uh, elections in Zimbabwe. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. So we went to our elections on uh, on the 30th of um, of, of July, and uh, to, I'm sure to the rest of the world, Zimbabwe actually finally went to an election, which was an important election based on the fact that number one, uh, for the first time in our history, we didn't have Robert Mugabe as a candidate. So a lot of people saw that as a change. <laughs> uh, and interestingly enough, it was also the first time that uh, one of the biggest opposition parties that have been established in Zimbabwe was actually not represented by their uh, uh, founder, uh, president. So a lot of people thought uh, this was real change and an opportunity for change in Zimbabwe. Uh, and to, to the rest of the international community, I think uh, the, the 2018 election to them was uh, a huge election. Uh, but a lot of them also started paying attention to this election immediately after November. And this was largely because the new administration as headed by our current president came up with a very interesting narrative that was quickly embraced. This narrative was that uh, Zimbabwe would want to see a, free, a peaceful free and fair election. So to a lot of people, this was something that was quite refreshing, uh, talking to colleagues all over the world. Um, some of us became a problem because we kept trying to say, but has this narrative been supported by real action on the ground? So beyond simply saying we want a free and fair election, what is actually happening on the ground? 
And it became a very uh, unpopular position uh, and there were consequences to be paid for taking that stance. But uh, the 2018 elections were premised on the fact that uh, we now had a new administration in Zimbabwe. Um, we, like I said, a new, new presidential candidates coming to the fore. Um, we were coming out of a military coup. Um, I know it, it's not been defined as such by a lot of people, but by many standards, um, it was a military coup. You had tanks on the streets that uh, um, <laughs> we all witnessed. We had soldiers uh, conducting security checks um, across the country, and uh, I don't know if it is not a coup, then what is that? Uh, but regardless of that, clearly we had a new administration that had demanded to run elections. Uh, the narrative that I talked about, which characterized the pre-election process, um, like I said, talked about fr peaceful, free and fair elections. It was not even tested to say, so how is this being defined in terms of Zimbabwe and where it was coming from? So this narrative, in my view, was not a narrative that was necessarily shared internally in Zimbabwe, but it was said to an audience that was watching, which was the international community. And part of the intention of that was to get the desired effect, which was acceptance, to say Zimbabwe is actually transitioning, because this had not happened. But one of the things that we must remind the world, probably, is that the narrative for peaceful, free, and fair elections did not start with the new administration. In fact, when you look at the 2013 elections and what our former president said, he also said the same things. But I suppose nobody believed him, given their understanding of how he always operated. Uh, but in this time around, because it was a new administration saying the same thing, there was a largely accepted view of the fact that Zimbabwe was moving. Interestingly enough, ahead of this election, like I said, this election did not start when the military intervention um, took place in November. Our elections in 2018, in my view, actually started in 2013 when we had the last election. Because Zimbabwe was not having an election in 2018 out of the blue. We've had elections. So, so uh, it was important and it remains important for us to look at those elections and compare them with then what happened in, in, in 2018. So one of the in interesting phenomena around uh, the 2018 elections was the fact that Zimbabwe was not only open for business, but also open for scrutiny. So as, as far back as November, we started hearing that groups would be invited to watch our elections, but not just ordinary groups, groups that have in the past been denied access to Zimbabwe, including the international media. Again, that brought a new excitement to say, wow, we've got the EU coming in to watch our elections. We've got um, um, the U.S. coming in to watch. There were specific invitations, in fact, extended by the Zimbabwean government to particular senators that have previously been critical of, of Zimbabwe in the U.S. So Senator Fleck and Senator Coons were all invited to watch our elections. So again, it opened the door to saying, well, Zimbabwe could actually be changing. So Zimbabwe became open for uh, uh, international scrutiny. Up to 65 groups were actually invited to come and watch our elections, uh, which is record-breaking by our own standards. Um, but following all this, um, and understanding the context, like I said, change without change. So on one hand, you had the narrative about change. Practically, the narrative was not supported by actions on the ground. So I'll talk about the change that we witnessed leading to this election. Number one, we had almost four attempts at amending the Electoral Act 
um, and uh, the desired effect from some of us in civil society was that such changes would at least at the barest minimum allow the full alignment of the electoral act to the constitution. Now, these attempts were largely piecemeal. So, there were changes, but there were not consequential changes. So, a lot of what happened in terms of uh, the legal framework, in terms of changes, were things relating to the administration of the electoral process. So, we saw some of that changing. Um, so, the electoral commission was now given full mandate to administer the voters' role. Uh, that was changed. But you're still looking at the electoral commission being the same electoral commission largely that has run all the other five to six elections that we've had in the past, save for some of these changes that I'll speak about. Number one, we had uh, the former chairperson of the electoral commission resigning. Uh, this was change. So we had Rita Makarao quitting her post. No full explanation as to why she quit her post. So it would be interesting to get read from a biography one of these days to say, why did she actually resign? And interestingly enough, she resigned after the military intervention that happened in November. So again, an interesting dimension. Secondly, we saw the firing of the chief election officer. Um, um, I used to call him my Chigu. Is it Chigumba? What was the name? No, no the, the chief election officer. I forget her name. We had several runs, run-ins with her. But she also got fired. Uh, she was a former permanent secretary in the uh, uh, president's office before being assigned to being the chief election officer. So she left that post also after the military intervention. So those two positions were changed ahead of this election. It's not normally encouraged to have uh, these kind of changes six months before elections. And we had that situation in Zimbabwe where the chief election officer was changed and uh, the, the um, uh, chairperson of the Electoral Commission was also changed. In terms of these changes, the replacements came in the form of uh, Priscilla Chigumba, who's now the chairperson of the Electoral Commission. Very limited election experience. I always joke with my colleagues to say the only election experience that our chairperson of the Electoral Commission actually had, which is none, was the observation of the Russian election. Uh, that was the only public exhibition of her participating in an electoral process. I don't know what that means, uh, but uh, this is what we know. But the replacement at the level of the chief election officer of the um, Zimbabwe Electoral Commission was Utoiles uh, Laigwana. Uh, now, those that have been following elections, elections are not run by commissions. They are run by the secretariat of the commissions. Um, of course, the, the Secretariat of the Commission must report to, to the Commission, but day-to-day uh, -day business of the election is run by the Secretariat. So Utoiles Laigwana, who's um, the, the acting CEO, has been the deputy acting CEO for Zimbabwean elections uh, for a long time. Uh, I'll need to check how many years he's been in that position. He's been responsible for operations. Now, if you're again working on elections, you know that this is the man who runs elections. Uh, everybody else above him uh, depends on him. Whatever he brings to the table is whatever is going to be dealt with. So this is the man that took over the operations of ZEC as the CEO, and he still maintained his position because he was acting CEO but remaining the, di uh, the, the deputy director responsible for operations. So he has been assuming two heads. So these are some of the changes that happened at the level of the Electoral Commission. The question is, were these real changes? So the rest of the infrastructure, the institution that ran uh, the 2018 elections, is not any different 
from the institution that uh, has been running elections before. So new faces using old infrastructure. This is what we saw. We have a pleasant chairperson of the commission who's running elections, uh, but did anything really change? Getting into the 2018 elections in terms of understanding the process as well. Like I said, this election happened on the backdrop of the 2013 elections. And in 2013, Zimbabwean elections were observed by, in terms of international observation, by the African Union and by the uh, uh, SADC. Comesa was also involved in this election. These observers came up with reports. Um, about 17 things were raised about the 2013 elections. So in as much as people tend to say, well, they tended to simply say the election was good, it was free, it was fair, it was credible. They actually raised 17 issues about the elections. And interestingly enough, if you go to these 17 issues, again, these are not new issues. These are issues that were largely raised again in 2008, largely raised again in 2005, largely raised again in 2002. And when you go to their report, uh, the preliminary report at least, they still raise fundamentally the same issues. So the question is, what about those observations? What had happened to, 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 to those observations? So given this, looking at the fact that um, the pre-election process was defined by the Electoral Commission preoccupying itself with attempting to fulfill what I called ticking the box, fulfill its constitutional mandate by registering voters, coming up with a new biometric registration process, ensuring that they conducted voter education, working with civil society organizations, ensuring that uh, they prepared for polling day, ensuring that they actually ran the elections, and ensuring that they announced results. The question is, was Zimbabwe ready for the 2018 elections? Um, and, and my response to that, given our tracking of these key electoral processes, Zimbabwe was ready for an election. Zimbabwe will always be ready for an election. But Zimbabwe was not ready for a credible free and fair election. And the indications of this are found in how key processes were administered leading up to this election. So when you look at uh, what happened between 2013 and 2018, there is a clear pattern of ill-preparedness for this election. This clear pattern is shown in the limited transparency around the administration of key processes. We have instances where the Electoral Commission deliberately refused to share crucial information, which should be a matter of public record. We went to a voter registration exercise with limited information around how it was going to happen. You know, up to about four months before the election process, there was no election calendar that was publicly shared. I mean, which country does that? Malawi has elections next year. They published their election calendar way earlier than ours, which was due in July, and their elections are next year. So the state of preparedness for a credible election uh, uh, was very worrying. And when you look at what then happened uh, uh, with the results that are currently being contested, a lot of people will start to think that this is something new. To us, it's not new. The pattern was clear. When you look at what happened back in 2014, attempts were made, and this is looking at the structural issues that are important for a credible election. Back in 2013, getting into 2014, one of the first pieces of legislation that was introduced in Parliament was an electoral amendment bill. 
at that stage, everybody thought, yeah, here is an opportunity for us to strengthen our laws so that we prepare for elections. So let's expect a bill that looks at strengthening the election law. And if you're looking at strengthening the Zimbabwean election law based on observations made in the past, you can't definitely ignore the question of the independence of the Electoral Commission. So we have a constitution that says the, in, the electoral institution uh, must be independent. But on the other hand, you have an electoral act that explicitly subordinates the same commission to the Minister of Justice. So on key decision-making uh, processes, they must refer to the Minister of Justice, who's an interested party in the election. So when this bill was introduced, this was the expectation because we had a new constitution. So why not align fully the electoral act to the constitution? That didn't happen. Our Minister of Justice back then was the current president. He was vice president and minister of, uh, of justice. He went on record, uh, and our Hansard, which is the parliament uh, broadcasting handbook, he actually said, I will bring a comprehensive bill to deal with all these issues back in 2014. And three years down the line, four years down the line, that bill never came. And there were four opportunities that we had as a country to fix these things. Ensure that we deal with the independence of the Electoral Commission. Ensure that we, uh, we enfranchise Zimbabweans by strengthening the right to vote. All that did not happen. There was a petition filed by civil society, which we led, to actually outline eight things that we felt would be important. Because you can't have a credible election process if the laws themselves are not strong enough to facilitate a credible election process. So we set ourselves up for a contested election as far back as 2014. And sadly, characters in the current administration were right at the doorstep of trying to ensure that these things were addressed, and they chose not to. We have letters that we wrote to the presidency to say, but we can't go to an election with this kind of law, and they were ignored. So it, the question is, was it deliberate to have such a weak legal framework leading up to this election. If it was deliberate, what was the intention? When you look at the administrative framework, again, we set ourselves up for a failed election, sadly, as far back as 2015, 2016, when the election commission had ample time to prepare a roadmap to election. We knew we were going to have elections in 2018 because the constitution defines when we'll have elections. Why did we not prepare an election calendar? Why did the Election Commission fail to begin building the necessary infrastructure in terms of coming up with concrete regulations and provisions, procedures, to administer an election process in a very inclusive and transparent manner? We only saw voter registration beginning at the end of 2017 in an attempt to come up with a biometric voter register. But even as that was happening, there was an insistence that the Election Commission does this transparently. So they share, break down statistics of daily returns on each kit because our elections must be verifiable. The law says it. And attempts for us to have this information shared by the Election Commission were denied formally. They said they would not share this broken down information. When it was time to have an inspection of the voters' roll, again, an insistence was made to say, before we even go to this process, I'm sure by now the Election Commission has a document that they would want to put up for inspection. In terms of the provisions of the law, can we get a copy of this role so that we look at it? It's a biometric role. It's the first time we're going to have it. The Election Commission refused. 
we went to court and won a court order to be issued with the, with the, the preliminary role. And in that court order, the high court was explicit. It said something that we, di- we didn't believe could ever come out of a high court in Zimbabwe. But the high court judge said, the election commission has a responsibility to act transparently and accountably because elections are a public process which are conducted for public good. And this is coming out of a Zimbabwean court. And surprisingly, the election commission went to court and appealed against the judgment. Can you imagine an election commission going to court and appealing a judgment which is urging them to act transparently and accountably? It happens in Zimbabwe. And the Supreme Court upheld the, 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 the appeal and said, no, we have no right to that information unless if we use uh, the provisions provided for in the Access to Information and Pri- Protection of Privacy Bill. And we had used the right to access information as enshrined in the Constitution. We found that quite worrying. This judgment came way after. It's close to the election is almost about two weeks. But we had secured the judgment to get that role back in June. So when you look at this, there was a clear pattern. And I could go on to how the election commission then refused to provide key information relating to how they printed ballots, key information relating to the number of ballots that they printed. The law says there's a threshold of 10% excess ballots that should be printed. We asked for verification of that they the fact that they'd only printed that which is allowed in terms of the law. And there was no response. We asked for the final copy of the voters' roll that was, that was used on the 31st before the election. And we asked that it be a complete roll. So there's often an argument to say that you asked for a voters' roll and you got it. Yes, we got some document. It was not a voters' roll. Because the law says that our voters' roll is biometric. And a biometric voters' roll contains pictures. It contains all the details. The roles that the election commission chose to share were not complete roles. The role that was used on polling day was printed on the 4th of July. And we know that between the 4th of July and the 29th of July, when Zek gave us what they called was the final voters' roll, uh, they made changes to what they shared with us. And we can prove it on the basis of the disk that they shared us when those changes were made. So there's no way that the role that they shared with us is actually the same as the one that was used. Because the one that was used had been printed on the 4th of July. So when you consider these things, the limited access to transparently conducting key electoral processes made it extremely difficult, in fact makes it extremely difficult for us to independently verify our own elections. So you have a situation where the election commission will sit at a panel and say, these are the results. And then you ask, so how did we get there? And they'll say, well, you have a responsibility to go back and check. When you ask for information that helps you to verify if what they're announcing is actually credible, you have no access to that information. So it becomes your word against their word. And I agree with, uh, with Glenn. Maybe the courts is not the best place to determine the credibility of this election, but a real assessment of how the processes were undertaken. Because the results at the end of the day, in my view, are a product of processes that were undertaken over the last four years. And in our view, these processes undertaken over the last four years were riddled with 
a lot of irregularities. They were conducted in a manner of limited transparency and accountability, and that is worrying. And this is nothing new, like I said. This has happened in 2018. This happened in 2008. And if nothing changes, this will happen in 2023. You can almost write the, the report for a 2023 election. Now, so going forward, I, I, I suppose part of what we may need to ask, because the question is, why vote? If we are serious about uh, making elections work for the citizens, and I agree with Glenn that uh, the problem currently is not with elections, but with the approach to elections. Elections, in my view, are seen as instruments to retain power. They are an opportunity to uh, renew a mandate. Uh, they are an opportunity to give a fresh face to the old God. Um, in a lot of cases, they've remained a facade where citizens are just passive actors. They have to register to vote and they have to cast a ballot. Then for the next four years, when elections are happening, they are nowhere to be seen. They are not part of... Um, they are not involved in strengthening the infrastructure necessary for a credible election. Their voice is not there when laws are fixed. Their voice is not there when institutions are built. Their voice is not there when the environment is assessed. And one of the things that I, I should have mentioned is the political environment. So a lot of what will be said about this election is that Zimbabwe had a peaceful election environment leading up to this election. Definitely, I think by our own standards, it was a much better election given what we have shown we can do in the past. But the threat of violence was always there. Because here's the thing. When you look at what happened in 2008, which was the most violent, one of the most violent elections we've had, and moving away from 2008, you'll find that there was no fundamental change that happened in terms of dealing uh, with the violence of 2008. In fact, if you compare what happened in March 2008 and June 2008, there were no changes except attitude. So there were no laws that were changed. There were no institutions that were changed. It's just that the politics changed. So what we had leading up to 2008 was that you had a facade of a peaceful environment, but with a constant threat of violence underpinning everything. And this is recorded in, in reports by civil society organizations who continued to indicate that levels of intimidation were thriving on the ground. But you also have a situation where, again, we secured a high court order that said traditional leaders should stay out of politics. And immediately after securing that high court order, we had the current president you know, address candidates from his party and encourage them to work with traditional leaders to win the election. In fact, encouraging them to bribe traditional leaders to ensure that they win. And it's on record. A high court order is there and the president is saying these things. We wrote to the president and said, but this is regrettable. Again, that was ignored. The high court order was ignored. There was a retrospective attempt to appeal against the order, uh, which has not been resolved at the court. So we went into these elections with traditional leaders who control 60% of Zimbabwe 
campaigning for a political party and doing so publicly in complete violation of the constitution in complete violation of a standing court order so yes there was no violence but the threat of violence and the intimidation was very blatant so going forward i think um if you then consider electoral processes leading up to 2008 there are four things that are crucial number one the f- kind of issues that have been raised and are being disputed around this election were known way ahead of this election and they were formally raised with responsible authorities and there's a record to this all the issues that are being disputed were raised formal, formally with the institutions that should have dealt with them number 2 the bulk of the issues being uh, contested have been raised again by observers who have watched our successive elections over the last almost 15 years so these things are not new number 3 in our view the deployment of the disputed measures by authorities before during and after these elections could have been deliberate because if they are known why repeat them and if they were deliberate they were deployed to achieve a predetermined outcome because elections are not won or lost on polling day they are won or lost or lost throughout uh, the election process number 4 opal ample opportunities availed themselves for the zimbabwean authorities to actually fix these issues and in our view they chose not to so if 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 we are going to say we as zimbabwe needs to move forward and uh, if we're going to answer the question whether zimbabweans must be prepared to go and vote in the next election we can't afford to ignore three fundamental issues we have to revisit our laws so we have a brilliant constitution at hand in zimbabwe just like kenya but this constitution has to be fully operationalized by laws that are totally in full compliance with the constitution now any law that is not constitutional in a constitutional dispensation must naturally fall away but the danger that we have in zimbabwe is the unconstitutional provisions are actually operationalized they are used so our view is that you need to strengthen the legal framework of our elections as a starting point we can't ignore that so getting a new electoral act is of importance at this stage number two, we can't ignore the question of institutional reforms and glenn has spoken about this yes we need to revisit the electoral commission we have an election commission that must reform and part of that reform sadly may mean that those that have been in the commission may no longer suit the positions that they occupy if we are to have a credible election process so we need to strengthen institutions but looking at institutions it goes beyond the electoral commission because there are other institutions that should support elections as well so these must be supported as well without doing this we will be back here at this stage in 2023 so security sector reform as part of institutional reform is something that needs to happen the military and the police and how they interact with citizens that has to be reflected on then we definitely need to revisit the environment to ensure that we secure the citizens so that they can freely express themselves zimbabweans do not feel safe to express themselves freely at the ballot and almost 60% of zimbabweans in rural communities face this challenge every day not just on polling day 
So dealing with the environment in which they participate in electoral processes has to be a long-term effort uh, that uh, touches on ensuring that by the time we get to five years from now, we have an environment where a rural Zimbabwean is free enough to go and express themselves without worrying about the repercussions. So to vote or not to vote, I think elections remain a, a, a critical vehicle for citizen expression. But our definition of elections must go beyond simply uh, availing an opportunity for citizens to register to vote and to cast a ballot. The citizen must be at the center of all democratic processes for elections to actually work for them. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Tawanda. Um, I allowed that to go on longer because this provides the necessary context and the information that we, um, this section of the, re, uh, of, you know, the inputs from Zimbabwe um, provide the necessary uh, background that we need. So uh, thank you very much, Tawanda. I think uh, I share with uh, the, the participants uh, the impression that, well, this sounds exactly like Kenya. It sounds like a repeat of Kenya. The, the calendar that kept on getting delayed with a knock-on effect on the, uh, on the effectiveness and transparency of the process, the opacity of the electoral management body, um, its refusal to respond to, uh, to people's demands that it adhere to the requirements of the law, um, the dominance of a sort of peace narrative that uh, privileged peace at the expense of uh, democracy, which had happened in 2013, and which I think to some extent again happened in uh, 2017, although I think people had by then learnt, uh, learnt a little bit. Um, also, the, the last-minute changes to the legal framework, uh, the problems of the electoral management body, the conflicts between the secretariat and the commissioners, all of these uh, we saw. Um, uh, the, the use of the courts to solve problems that are essentially political is obviously something that we have to, uh, that we have to deal with uh, going forward. Indeed, as Glenn was pointing out, the courts cannot solve problems which, uh, uh, which, are, um, which are political, but you still seem to have some sense of hope that if we were only to get our systems right, uh, we should not lose hope um, uh, in, uh, in elections. You're listening to a discussion on the futility of elections in Africa to vote or not to vote. Stay tuned. I would now like to call on, um, on Willis uh, to, to give us a, a view of a, a comparative analysis of the Kenyan, at least a, a view of the Kenyan elections that allows us to, to sort of juxtapose it with the, with the uh, experiences in uh, Zimbabwe. Um, as you were talking about the various petitions uh, Tawanda, that you had, uh, you know, presented to the court, I was reminded that I should have shared that uh, we've also been going to court with, uh, amongst others, uh, uh, Willis, who uh, in um, uh, last year, uh, 2017, he was the lead counsel in a case 
which was brought to try to counter the, the, the tendency that um, votes uh, would get either lost or miscounted from the uh, primary level at the polling station uh, to the final tallying stage. And the courts held that the constituency level was the final level where results were to be announced. Uh, this was a, you know, a huge uh, development, but unfortunately, perhaps, Willis, you, you might touch on it, um, this was subverted by the way that the electoral management body, the IEBC, actually carried out uh, the elections. We also went to court with a last-minute request that the voter register be opened. Um, we were, I think, partially uh, successful. So there were, we've, we've not only protested, we've gone to court, we've, you know, done what you've done. We've done the research, we've done the advocacy, and, uh, and we, if you read uh, some of the reports that we've uh, got at the back there, you'll see the many, many similarities in the, in the two experiences. But of course, I'm sure that uh, uh, there are differences. One, one issue was the role of um, of uh, international observers, which in the Kenyan case, with uh, at least about one exception, uh, we, we felt was, it was an extremely negative uh, experience. And to this day, uh, the hostility lingers. Uh, and I noticed that even I myself, when I was looking at uh, reports on the Zimbabwean election, was barely bothering to look at uh, what uh, international observers uh, were saying. Such was the sort of uh, lingering impact of our experiences. So I'm going to call on Willis now uh, to speak to us. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm not going to say anything new that you've not heard before. I'll just give perspective as to my experience and our experience as Kenya in the last elections. Number one, one thing that we must note is that when we started our elections process uh, in Africa, the mode of manipulating elections was through ballot stuffing. You go to a polling station, you have 10 extra ballots. There was no streamlining of polling stations. You will not know, streaming of polling stations, you will not know how many votes or how many voters are registered at a particular polling station. A lot of energy was spent fighting that opaque process, and we came up with uh, means through which ballot staffing was going to be limited. Then there was the issue of where do you count these votes? I'm starting from 1992. Uh, in the experience of 92, people will uh, vote in a polling station, then you manually carry the votes to a central location and conduct uh, tallying in one particular location. In between the polling station and the place of counting the votes, new ballots will be introduced into the system, and the ones that were actually cast will be thrown in rivers, some will be burnt, some will be taken to police stations. The new ones are the ones that will be used to declare the results. Now, all that was addressed by saying, let's count the vote at the polling station. Why am I so concerned about the polling station as the primary place for conducting elections? That brings me to the case that we did with minor care. You have seen him at the back. The minor care case, which was a case that was meant to address the question of the primacy of the polling station at the as the principal place where presidential elections will be conducted and results shall be declared at the constitutional centers and those shall be final. Very straightforward provision of the Constitution. It makes sense to anybody who cares about elections. Unfortunately, it never made sense to IABC. They actually felt there was a problem having the polling station votes that have been counted to be final. They actually said, no, they cannot be final. We must have a say. 
And who are we if we never had an occasion to even appear at that polling station? We are in Nairobi. We must have a say. And you ask them, will those ballots be physically brought to Nairobi? No. We will have a say as to how they are declared. Now that tells you the first problem that you have with an election where the election management body does not concern itself with the transparency of the process. I had a last, my last meeting with civil society was I think sometimes in March or April, and I did say Kenya will not have a presidential election that is free and fair. And if it has, I don't think the people will accept it. I'm sorry to say that I was vindicated. Uh, the next election that was held, the president won by 98% of the votes that were cast. I think that is a history. In the, uh, that's a first in the history of Kenya. Nobody has ever won a presidential election by more than 70% uh, of the votes. Kibaki, I think, managed 63%. Uhuru, 67. Uhuru managed 98% to be president today. Now, whether it was free and fair, whether the people voted, the jury is still out there. But we did answer the question, why vote? And the answer was in, on the 26th of October. People refused to vote because they had been taken through a process that they believed the electoral process or their votes was not going to count in that election. Now, what was our experience in Kenya? Now, briefly, when we addressed that issue, the main problem became how do you make the declaration, the final declaration of election results? Many people focus on polling stations. You will not find any problem. If you find a problem at the polling station, it is so minimized or it is so mitigated that it cannot affect the outcome of the elections. Unless you have an earthquake or a civil war, polling stations' malfeasances cannot ultimately affect the outcome of any presidential election. I'll talk about presidential. I'll not talk about the other type of elections. They cannot affect. Now, that is why when we did the minor care case, which I'm going to use as the basis to do my presentation, we were trying to safeguard the polling station as the premier place where elections will be conducted. Now, the ballot staffing issue had been addressed because we know the number of votes that will be, ballots that are going to be printed for all, all polling stations. The number of registered voters per polling station is already fixed in law, not more than 700 voters. So that if you are to staff, the most you can staff is up to 700. And you must be in so many polling stations, 40,000 polling stations, to make any meaningful impact. Now, the new frontier then moved away from the ballot. It became what we call the result declaration form. That form which you are using to make a declaration of the results. It is difficult to staff in 40,000 polling stations, but it is easy to manipulate the numbers of forms in a polling station. But the saving grace was you are talking of 40,000 forms. It will take a Herculean task to manipulate 40,000 polling station forms. There are so many forms. There are so many. An entire ream of full scope only carries 200, 200, 300 papers. We are talking of 40,000. Almost impossible. Now, the target then became we are going to manipulate at the polling at the constituency tallying centers. There are how many? 290. That is feasible. Yeah? Because then it has been reduced. You can specify which constituencies are being targeted to manipulate the results. So we say we are targeting 80 constituencies. These are the numbers that we want to manipulate using that polling station form. Now, when it comes to our election experience, 
and even the conduct of civil society, conduct of observers, conduct of political parties, nobody pays attention to that election form. It is the minor key case that for the first time we are discussing the issue and the role of the polling station form, sorry, the constituency form, as the basis to make a final declaration and how to make it accessible to the people so that we limit instances of tampering with elections. Beyond the form, the issue again is composition of the EMB. And I say this with tremendous respect to our laws. We have the best laws. We don't need any more legal reforms on elections, if you ask me. What we need are institutional reforms and attitudes that facilitate or that accept free and fair elections as a key component of their work. Now, you ask yourself, for example, and I asked this question to the team I worked with in the last general elections. Do you think Chebukadi has the component to stand up and address the people of Kenya and say, Raila Odinga is the winner of these elections? And everybody in that room said no. Then I asked the question, then why are we going to these elections? By what magic do you think is going to be made the president? If you have all agreed that the person who has the final say in terms of making a declaration lacks the component to make that declaration. Then I ask the next question. Who within that commission has the component that can stand up to the public and say, according to what we've received, these elections have been won by Raila Molodinga? And then the answer was, none can do that. And I ask the same question. Why then are we going to these elections? Now, part of that was the conversation that informed the decision not to participate in the repeat elections in Kenya at that particular time. For the simple reason that when you have an election management body that is hostage to the security forces, even the very reason why you are participating becomes defeated. You lose an election before you even start. So that your participation is only a means towards legitimizing a flawed process. IBC was never ready from the beginning to have a formal process that will respect the will of the people of Kenya. And I always say this, forget about all the mistakes, forget about all the malpractices that take place before the declarations. Those malpractices, those irregularities don't affect the outcome of the results of a presidential election. The one that ultimately affects the outcome is the elections form, that declaration itself, the tallying center. But the focus of international community and our observers have been, we'll come in, let's go into the country, two, power, two observers per four by four. I want to go to Kisumu, I want to go to Meru, I want to go to Mombasa, and they fight to go to Mombasa. Mombasa is the beach resort town of Kenya. Then they go and visit, watch villagers cast their ballots. Then they immediately release what they call the interim statement. The elections were largely peaceful. Kenya was peaceful before the voting day. So what, there was no issue. Of, we, are not, we are not in a civil war. So what is this peaceful outcome that you are declaring on the elections? If it were in Burundi, you can say the elections were peaceful because they were in a state of civil war. But in Kenya, there was no such a state. So what is this you are saying? Now they go and observe that casting of the ballot, how to insert a ballot paper into a ballot box. <laughs> and that becomes the basis upon which the fairness of an entire national elections is judged. There is no observer mission in the last Kenyan elections. There is no civil society observer group that deployed even a single observer to the IBC Tallinn Center at Bomas. And if they did, the farthest they went 
was at the plenary. You sit there as an audience to wait for someone to come out and tell you these are the votes. Nobody had access to the verification desks, the so-called verification desks that were being used to tally those results at Bomas of Kenya. Not even any political party. But why do I say so? Because that verification exercise, that process, was a security process. You couldn't access even if you wanted to. Now we have moved into a new tier of elections, which I call security-driven elections processes. Now we are still having a conversation today here of a civil election where we will vote, people will count, and an announcement will be made, declaration will be based on that announcement. We are civil people. But it is time we start thinking through that the world is not civil as we are. If you hope that somebody will sit somewhere and declare the results as you voted in your police station, you are wasting time. You will go to court, you will attend the counting of votes, you will attend the tallying of elections, but if the person who is in charge or who is responsible for the final verification and the declaration does not believe in the same ideals that you believe in, then that entire election process is a waste of time. Will people turn out to vote? In 2013, from 2007 in Kenya, there was a lot of public uh, dissociation from the electoral process, that if voting is going to make us lose lives, then let's, we'll not do it again. But the same public was sufficiently mobilized to vote in 2013. Out of the outcome of 2013 elections, again, significant portion of the population says, I will never participate in this process. Uh, if our votes will not be respected, we will not want to participate. But in 2017, again, in their numbers, they are sufficiently mobilized and they come out to vote. What does it say? Kenyans believe in voting. Uh, the issue of not voting is more always an expression of their frustration with how this process is tampered with. But should they give up? They will not give up. Uh, my colleague Glenn said that people attend political rallies maybe because they are bored. Possibly they also go to vote because they are bored. They have nothing to do on that election day. So they will still go and vote on that day out of that boredom. So you will always still have outpouring numbers in polling stations. And in Kenya, the last elections, polling stations were, some polling stations, the queues, more than one kilometer at 11 p.m. in the night. I happen to be observing, following, monitoring how our people are coming out to vote for the last elections. By 11 p.m. in the night, the night before the elections, queues were forming. Moi Primary School, for example, Moi Avenue Primary School, the queue was more than five kilometers, and it's 12 a.m. in the night. So the question of people mobilized, people interested to participate, it is always overwhelming. The problem is in how we translate that overwhelming turnout into a formal declaration of what the people said at the ballot. It's true what they say about elite capture. I don't believe even in Kenya it exists. But for how long will it exist? For how long will the people's will be tampered with? We may have gotten away with 2017. We may have gotten away with 2013. We may have gotten away with 2007. But for how long? What is the option that exists when the people cannot express themselves through democratic free and fair elections? I don't know what options exist, but I know some countries have used some options which are not feasible or which should not even be the options that we advocate for. But they are pushed to those options because we try to undermine how 
they participate. Now, the new frontiers for fighting for election justice or electoral process, uh, fair election processes, number one, as I said, is the question of the election forms. Number two is the national tallying center, the tallying of election results. When we were doing the minor care case in Kenya, we had hoped naively that when we won in the High Court and the Court of Appeal, tallying of votes will be done at the constituency level. We didn't for a second even thought that there will be a national tallying center. In fact, we were saying that the national tallying center will be done at the boardroom of IABC. By the time they will be declaring the elections, the winner will have given his acceptance speech. We will have all done our tallying at our various homes using our calculators. Our TVs will be tuned on. We do the math per constituency. We add who has gotten what. We know who has won these elections. But the national tallying exercise, number one, the media becomes a co-conspirator to use that word. A media, a media industry that has capacity to cover events, the polling across the entire country. Remember on voting, on polling day, the media is across the entire country. And they have cameras reporting live as events unfold. But surprisingly in the evening, none of them is able to capture for you at the constituency level how the tallying is taking place. They all now start looking to the election management body to tell us the results. Tell us the results. What do you mean tell us the results? You are the one who was in the constituency. You should be telling the national the results. Now, that to me happens because of media capture. Media agreeing to acquiesce and to abandon their role to report fairly and accurately what is transpiring at the constituency levels. Then they turn to a national center to do that reporting. Then, the next issue, again, at the National Talent Center is on the question of access. Those of you who went to Bomas, you'll agree with me that that becomes a garrison. It becomes a security, a security zone. For you to even access, there are more policemen or security officers than there are political party representatives. You are actually walking into a military barracks when you go to the National Talent Center. Now, the moment you walk into a military barrack, you are now subject to the rule of that security group, the, 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 the commanding officer in charge of that particular locality. So that is what happened in Kenya. So that at the critical point when a declaration is made, our electoral process becomes subject to the manipulation and the control of security forces. So that whatever you've done throughout the year or throughout the last four years becomes non-important. Of import only becomes what that person who controls access to the telling center has to say. And that now becomes the feature of our new elections, the role of our security forces in the elections process. It may be through the police, it may be through the intelligence service, maybe through the military, but what you actually see is a very forceful or to your face presence, military presence, that undermines how you participate in that final part of the elections. Drawing a parallel with Zimbabwe very briefly, number one, at least on the question of cost, Kenya had the most, second most expensive election in the entire world. The only other vote that is most expensive than a Kenyan's vote is the one for Papua New Guinea. It costs 2,500. Your vote alone in Kenya costs 2,500. That is $25 and some cents. The most expensive in Africa. But it does not, the outcome does not reflect the cost that you are pumping in. The second issue on the voter register 
Even as I stand here today, if you ask the chairperson of the IABC, tell me the exact number of registered voters in Kenya. He will not give you the number. Or the number that he will give you will be different from the number that will be given by the director of elections. And the one the director of elections will give you will be different from the one you will get from the director of ICT. Same issues. An oscillating voter register that nobody knows the actual number of registered voters. On the question of the legal framework, uh, I hold the view Zimbabwe may still be developed with the legal frameworks. I do believe that our legal framework has sufficiently developed to this stage that we do not even need to develop it any further. We just need to get it right in terms of composition of the IEBC and be faithful to implement what the laws have already provided. The bad laws have already been declared unconstitutional by the courts. The ones that were made to facilitate the rigging of elections, those ones were sought by the High Court and they be declared unconstitutional. We are back to the election laws that had been agreed upon. The final point I wish to raise is on the issue of the EMB. We thought that we can have an independent election management body. We cannot have an independent election management body. In fact, the word independent should be taken out of IEBC. We should have an election management body, in my view, that comprises of representatives of competing political parties. Let political parties dialogue within the commission and agree. And they will tell on each other, if you are trying to manipulate, that information will come out so early enough before the manipulation takes effect. So that if you claim that you're having an independent IABC, look at how they are appointed. Their selection process is so executive-oriented, and the executive is a representative of a political party at any given point, so that it will still go back to one political party having an unfair advantage over the other competing political parties. And my final question, which I said, if ever participants in an election do not feel that a chairperson of an EMB cannot make a declaration that is averse to the sitting president or his political party, then that EMB has no business doing elections. Because the first primary role of an EMB chairperson is to be ready to declare the results of an election, whichever way they come. But if you feel he cannot do it the opposite, then he has no business, in my view, to conduct elections. That, in summary, is my, thought, or my thoughts on how we can restructure this particular process. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Willis. <laughs> uh, I saw uh, Tawanda and Glenn uh, nodding in recognition of, of what he was describing. Um, now, uh, I need to ask you, uh, are you comfortable going straight into the next um, presentation? Or does one of you want to suggest a stretch or something like that? I'm not familiar with such things myself. The shifting, you know, how rigging methods morph in, uh, in tandem with developments in trying to secure uh, uh, our elections. And I won't uh, try and summarize everything. I think everyone in this room knows <laughs> those issues uh, uh, more, than, more than well enough. I think it was uh, more important for our Zimbabwean colleagues to get uh, you know, a flavor of um, how, we also do these, um, how we also do these things. Um, so I would now uh, like to um, hand over to 
Professor Karuti Kanyinga uh, to come here and, and try and give us a sense of, okay, what does all this mean? We've, we've done all these things. Uh, Zimbabwe feels perhaps that they need to keep on changing laws, strengthening institutions, and uh, we feel that we've actually, apart from a few tweaks here and there, we've, we've done enough for people of good faith to be able to work <laughs> with that system. So I think our problem is the people of good faith. Now we are faced with the problem of our values and our people, huh? and how are we going to solve that, we don't know. So, uh, and I don't know what uh, possible methods have been used uh, elsewhere that, uh, that we haven't thought of, um, but I'm loath to go into another expensive procurement exercise of anything at all. <laughs> indeed, uh, indeed, I, I, I think we, we, we may need to think seriously about uh, what Glenn said. If we can't fix these issues, let's not hold elections until we fix them. So I'm um, looking forward to you, Professor, to give us some sort of wisdom on how we're going to deal with these, uh, with these issues before we then move into the plenary. Thank you so much. <laughs> Is that too uh, good, 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 uh, good morning, everyone. Um, uh, let me begin by just saying that uh, I think really this has actually been a discussant to the two papers that were presented. And therefore, I don't know what I'm actually going to do because it's cut um, it right by explaining to us where we've gone wrong and uh, why we are looking at the wrong things. Um, because uh, the most important thing he has said that elections are actually not lost at the beginning of the electoral processes anywhere in Africa. Increasingly, elections are lost at the transmission level, and that's what we have not been paying attention to. I will be coming back to that later because I think that's quite profound and I feel even civil society, academia and the international community everywhere in Africa observe the wrong things. And I was convinced about this when I went to Zimbabwe recently and looking at Kenya. We all observe wrong things, put more money than the electoral commission does on the wrong electoral processes. And we should have acknowledged, we should have known this from Zimbabwe's and Kenya's elections in 2008 and 2007. Um, but let me just begin by making, uh, uh, just saying how I would like to look at this di uh, discussion. I'll look at the context in which elections are played out and then identify key things that have come from this particular discussion and identify a number of policy issues that come out that we should be paying attention to from policy point of view and from even civil society monitoring point of view. Um, but I must declare publicly that Tawanda left me with a very big bill of Zimbabwe boards in my pocket because we had organized a focus group discussion on the last day. I went and changed my money and Tawanda was nowhere to be seen. <laughs> I still have the money with me. So <laughs> we were organizing to ask people, why did uh, people vote the way they did? Uh, and why is the electoral commission behaving the way it was doing. Those were the two questions we wanted to pay attention to on the data first. But let me admit that when you look at Zimbabwe and Kenya, there are quite a number of similarities, but there are also certain differences in Zimbabwe. Um, and what personally I would say that uh, Zimbabwe's election was slightly different from uh, elections that have observed elsewhere is the society in Zimbabwe. Um, prior to the voting day on the 30th, I went around Harare, and what I was looking for was how voters actually relate to one another. 
And the most amazing thing is, don't ask me where I got this one, but I went to quite a number of nightclubs <laughs> after the rally, after the Chinisa rally, which was held behind the, uh, the tower uh, hotel. And he's ended actually to go to quite a number of nightclubs. Don't ask me who was with me. <laughs> but the most amazing thing is people actually wearing different T-shirts and dancing together. Those are amazing shots that I took, which is very, very um, different from different other places. And then when they were leaving rallies and cross-causing on Samuel Marshall Avenue, the biggest avenue, they were shaking hands and even saying goodbye to you. Chimisas or the opposition would tell Zano PF bye-bye to your government, you are no longer there. And they will tell the others also bye-bye to your huge rallies. And the reason is simply because the opposition had the biggest rallies, had the most vibrant rallies you can ever see. With very good entertaining songs. Chiza, chiza. You know, if, if I'm, I don't know whether I'm pronouncing it right, right? And, and the Zano PF was the most conservative, docile, Boring, empty stadium, empty stadium. It's like you are walking to a policy-making workshop, right? It's, I'm serious. You know, and they went there and after sitting for 30 minutes and speaking in uh, Shona, they were speaking in Shona in spite of uh, the international observers sitting there. And you really, I, I realized I'm wasting my time seated at uh, the stadium. So I decided actually to go back where there was action. <laughs> and, and that's typical of Africa, that the opposition everywhere, everywhere is highly energized. The opposition is generally highly energized. But then we need to look at also the demographics of the opposition in Africa. And the demographics are very simple, and this is something we may want to start underlining. It's young. It's unemployed, in quotes, because actually no one is unemployed. Because we're earning an income, you are living. You may not be having a cent in your pocket, but you are living, you have got something, a meal actually. No one is not having us a two, two meals in Zimbabwe. That's also another stand. I found that I found that one very shocking. That people having two meals a day are over 70% of the population. That shocked me because I thought it's only one meal. In Kenya, people having less than two meals a day are very few as well. And these are studies that show that. Let's debate that another day. Now, I'm simply saying that when you look at the opposition, it's highly vibrant, but the demographics are slightly different. It's youthful. It's highly educated. It's passionate. But they don't do one thing. They don't register as voters. But they're very good in dancing in opposition rallies. On the other hand, when you look at the conservatives, the docile, the elderly that comprise the ruling parties across Africa, they have one thing in common. They are old. And by the way, I'm old also. Eh? Glandell and I are old. So count and minor care there, you know. So we are older than you and therefore we are talking from experience. So forgive us. They are old. They are about f over 50. They have an income. They have connections to the public sector. In one or the other, they are, civil, they are connected to the civil service, they are, have this and that, and they have money. They can bus people to workshops, they can bus people to rallies. They have income. They are either farming or have, 
or I've got business or, or, or an occupation or one form or the other. Those are differences that we need to start marking very carefully. But they are not, I don't know how to gauge their passion because it's very different. And this is something very common. Look at Tano, I mean CCM in Tanzania. Look at uh, the, 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 the Kano of the old days in Kenya here. Uh, look at uh, Malawi. Look at uh, Museveni's uh, party in Uganda. All these things run a common theme. The, uh, and I thought I, I better mention that because these are things that we may want to start paying attention to when it comes to policy uh, interventions. The second thing I think to note that is very common across the region is the uh, Zimbabwe Election Commission behaving in a similar manner as IMBC in Kenya and behaving in the same manner as Tanzania Electoral Commission and behaving in the same manner as Uganda's Electoral Commission. That if actually you don't know where you are, if you are blindfolded and landed into Zimbabwe, you think you are in Kenya, you think you are in Tanzania, you think you are in Malawi, you think you are, you are in all these countries. That they behave in the same manner. High level of incompetence, and what I'm calling incompetence here is not technical incompetence. Let me clarify. These electoral commissions are not run by technically incompetent people. They are run by people who are very sophisticated and with very good technical skills. But let me just say that I don't think there are any electoral commissions that have got political preparedness and political competence. And when I say political preparedness and political competence, I mean the ability to read political nuances and understand them in the manner in which they should be reflected upon. And part of the reason why they, they just decide to be politically incompetent could be deliberate, could be naivety, but it's something we may want to start studying. Let's take Zimbabwe, for instance. They ran, and they have actually, uh, 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 our colleagues have said very well that they ran far much better elections than the previous elections in Zimbabwe. The voter turnout was huge. Every polling station did not have less than, uh, uh, did not have more than 500 uh, uh, voters, except in a few occasions. And if you are, your polling station had more than 50 voters, 50,000, uh, is it? 500 voters, sorry, 500 voters. Then you had 10 election commission staff. If you had less than 500 voters in your polling station, then you had eight polling uh, st station staff. If you have got 300, then you have got six polling station staff. That was across the board. I went to uh, Wange West. You know, I, went, I chose the best place to go to. Um, but I went there because I wanted also to look at the racial tensions and the, the, the way people vote uh, in a racially organized situation. And when you look at how they vote, and this is what I'm calling incompetence of Zek. When you look at the tallying of votes, they began with uh, presidential votes in all polling stations. The voting across Zimbabwe, you counted the, polling, I mean, the, the votes of the president in that polling station. Then follow that one with the, that of a member of parliament and follow it up with that of a councillor, right? Uh, so at the end of the day, you can say, that was well done at that level. But when it came to the National Talent Center, the incompetent ZEC would announce votes for parliamentary and would not give an indication of how many votes of a presidential candidate were in that particular parliamentary constituency. And some of us shouted to us 
went into that telling center. Unfortunately, it was not as secured as Kenya's. And told them, I mean, you are going to create a crisis in the country because people would like to know that if it's Wange West, that this is the parliamentary resort, run it again, it's also the parliamentary resort. For people to see the comparison. And those of us who are saying that was based on experience that if elections are three, if there are three elections, harmonized elections in Zimbabwe are three. Councillor, presidential, and, presiden and parliamentary. If you want to see whether there is fiddling, you have got to look at whether the total votes are the same. Because as we have said in Kenya here, you don't get into a polling station and make a decision that I'm not voting for MP or councillor. I'm only voting for president. So you have got to check along the three columns using an Excel sheet and see are these equal in number and even if they are not equal in number, uh, where are uh, spoiled ballots? Because those are the, un the only ones which will make a change. And if you notice a difference of more than 2%, actually a difference of more than 3%, then you need to shout that there is something that is anomalous. And that's what you can actually say that if you look at the three elections in Zimbabwe, six elections in Kenya, you can tell the anomaly by looking at the total number of votes cast in that particular order. In Kenya here, of course, in 2007, Musambwen raised hybrids because you would see a difference of 15% between parliamentary and presidential. 2013, someone tells me, Kornoin parliamentary constituency was the last one to be announced and had terrible changes. I have not, I have not looked at that one. I didn't study the, the, the 2013 elections in any clear manner. But in Zimbabwe, I'm waiting to see whether the electoral commission is going to put all the elections together and then we'll be able to change, to check in every polling station and be able to identify. I'm mentioning that simply because I think also from a civil society point of view, people are increasingly not learned by evidence. We don't invest in knowledge. In fact, in many polling, in many petitions, in many um, legal uh, 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 petitions, you'll find more lawyers than statisticians accompanying people who are petitioning in an election. You'll find more lawyers with very limited legal knowledge, and like uh, Willis here, also making presentations. Elections are beyond law when it comes after voting. Elections are no longer about the, 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 the legal dimensions, and I'll come back to that. And I think we, st we need to start investing heavily, heavily, in analysis so that we are evidence-led and we know uh, details of what uh, 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 is happening. But le let me turn to the um, uh, international observers and uh, local observers again. Um, this has not been discussed in detail, but I think it's an issue we need to start paying attention to um, because of one thing, that rarely do people... Uh, put, uh, uh, even domestic observers are rarely put in all polling stations, and yet people have got the capacity to say, in every polling station we can have an observer. Again, the international observers, of course, are tarmac-driven. Right? They are tarmac-driven, and they will observe elections on basis of, when are we having lunch? Right? Um, what time are we uh, heading to the hotel? That becomes a very common feature among most of the international observers. I remember, I mean, uh, us saying, uh, now we need to be rural-based rather than urban-based and, and quite a number. And now I'm mentioning this simply because also international observation is something that we need to pay attention to and we have not paid attention to in a, 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 
a big way. And the last point I think is Willie's uh, point of saying that when you look at elections everywhere, in, I mean in Kenya here and many other places, elections are, highly, uh, are becoming highly securitized. Implying in many places in Africa, we may actually start making a conclusion that if the security sector or the military or the police does not want a candidate, they will never have that candidate have the power. In Zimbabwe, during Shangirai's time, the military said they will never salute him. And that becomes almost a, a similar trend virtually everywhere. I, I'll be coming back to that uh, very, very closely. But, but I, I think we are coming to a conclusion, I mean, to a, to, a, uh, to a very interesting moment in Africa where we are saying, when we look at elections everywhere, elections are actually giving democracy a bad name. Elections are giving democracy a bad reputation. The way, not necessarily about the way they are conducted, but their final outcome. Uh, Trump who came through an election. And many other leaders have come through an election. When you look at it that way, then we start asking, isn't it true then that democracy is actually getting bad reputation from these elections? I have, um, if you look at how those people have studied elections for a very long time, uh, some of them have even actually said that elections are giving us stressless democracy. And we are coming from a situation actually where leaders have been choosing voters. And we are not far from that. In Kenya here, leaders would choose voters. You can look at the voters raw. Pluck out from the black book or from the voter register, pluck out sections with letter O. Omondis and Otienos have been plucked out. That used to be a situation before 2007, the voters register. You can go elsewhere and pluck out K and Karyokis and Jero K and N, Karyokis and Jerogas. And we are coming from a situation where leaders actually designed on who to vote in an election. And uh, until recently when the voters register have been reformed in many countries, that used to be the trend. People would go to a, go to a polling station and they would be told that your name is not in the register and you would not have anything to do. Now, the fortunate thing in Zimbabwe, for instance, this time around, is that, unlike what we may say about the oscillating register, is that the voter register was far much better than before. The number of people in Zimbabwe turned out, turned away from voting, in all the analysis that I've done, was less than 1%. Less than 1% turned away. And they were turned away for good reasons. That you are actually in, a, in the wrong polling station. Your polling station is about three kilometers away. Or you are having the wrong card, the wrong identification document. When you look at less than 1% compared to many other instances. So that's an improvement. But again, we may say we, are, we need to start paying attention to the, um, um, uh, to the, to, 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 to the voters' role because it helps us uh, to pay attention to um, uh, 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 things that may be going wrong. My third point in relation to this is actually do elections mean the same thing to everybody in Africa today? That's the starting point. My answer to that is that I think increasingly, looking at how elections have been conducted and how we are embracing or not embracing them, elections seem to be meaning different things to different people at different point, times. And I think the ordinary person goes for elections not because of anything else, but because we have decided to... Uh, to, to put together harmonized elections. If we went for elections of a councillor, MP in Zimbabwe and the president, if they were scattered at different, that which would be very expensive, I think the voter turnout in presidential elections would be very low.
People vote for a council and MP and forget that there is a presidential election. Similarly, here in Kenya, I would think it would be the same. And now, now that people have actually lost faith in the national election for, for presidency in many, many, many countries, people are increasingly turning to local elections as something that they can have faith in. Councillor or local, local level. And that's where they are putting a lot of attention now in demanding change through the local, uh, the local leaders. Um, but that's really need to be born out of studies because um, I'm not saying with a lot of evidence, but I am increasingly compelled to think uh, people put a lot of differences. They know the difference between those particular three elections. But of course we need also to say that in this particular forum, our discussion is on the presidential election, not these other elections that make a lot of difference in people's lives not the national election um, that makes li li uh, life better for them. So I'm just raising that in order for us to start asking where is the passion for change of, for elect electoral reforms if we tend to be looking at elections, uh, if, different if di elections mean different things to, uh, to different people at different times. Now, for the elites or political leaders, elections are a matter of life and death. For one simple reason. They are giving you an opportunity for power without accountability. They are giving you an opportunity to abuse for your power for self-aggrandizement. Elections are giving you an opportunity to provide jobs for boys and girls. An opportunity for development of your own without accountability at all. And above everything else, in elections are giving you an opportunity to occupy a position of office where you will not be abiding by the rule of law and you will be having very limited consequences for breaking the law. I'm simply saying that simply because when you look across Africa, there is absence of the rule of law. We have not seen people being punished for electoral malfeasances. There's no senior politician anywhere across Africa that gets the consequences of messing up with elections. And voters have also realized that elections cannot punish voters, cannot punish leaders. If you vote and you don't get the kind of leaders that you want, then you are, you are left with choiceless opportunities. And when you are left with choiceless opportunities, what has happened now is that you look at elections as, as a sport. So election now has increasingly become a sport because there's a competition between your region and another region. It's a competition between your ethnic community and another ethnic community. And I believe people are continue, going to continue voting because now it's a sport. It's a feel-good effect. It's maneuvers as Chelsea on your TV screen. And therefore, even if Manu loses ten times, you'll not stop watching it. So because elections have become a national sport, a cultural sport, because of their meaninglessness, people continue attending to them because that's the only way they are feeling good because, again, it has been produced, it turned into a tournament between your village, your ethnic community, and another group because we have not been able to use elections to foster accountability. Uh, in fact, I think uh, it's uh, uh, Obasajo sometimes, I think, who uh, was called to administer, um, I mean, to check either in elections in, Ziba, uh, in uh, Togo or DRC. I'll have to check my records clearly. 
And because there was a dispute, uh, he told that head of state, I can't remember whether it's Kabila or the Togolese uh, man, um, and because they wanted to postpone the election given the conflict that was, had taken place. And he just told him, what's wrong with you? I mean, how do you want to postpone an election and cause a crisis? How can you lose an election that you are organizing? How can you lose an election that you are organizing? You are organizing? Get out of here. Go and organize the elections, you know. Um, I'm mentioning that simply because to demonstrate that if the government is, is um, <coughs> organizing an election, then um, uh, there is no possibility for that government to lose. Let me get then into six things that have come out and that we shall be paying attention to. I think that need to be paid attention to, given that particular context that we see in Africa. When you listen to this conversation, it tells us, first of all, we are holding elections without constitutionalism. And in some instances, not all instances, without a, lo a robust legal framework. Um, but even where there is a robust legal framework like the Kenyan uh, section, uh, uh, elections, Willis has already told us that we have got a robust one, but we don't adhere to it. In Zimbabwe, they don't have a robust one. A detailed one. A comprehensive one. In fact, one would have wondered, why, why, how was Zimbabwe expecting a military to impose a leader, and seven months later, you want them, the military, to decide that that's not the kind of person they want them to impose. I mean, that's, that's common sense. That's laws of common sense. If the military has imposed two, seven months earlier, you expect that military to let you go. Now, the, the most interesting thing also with Zimbabwe is, I, I found very, very, very contradictory tendencies. When the police moved in into Harare, and started beating people. They were overwhelmed by the protesters. They were overwhelmed you know, because most of the police had not come from the countryside where they were uh, securing elections. And because they were overwhelmed by protesters, very young again, as I said, very young and passionate protesters, they called in the military. And what the military began by doing is to start shooting immediately. And that's actually what reduced the violence. But the most interesting thing is even the president denied that he knew that the military was who called the military. Everybody did not know who called who. The police didn't even know who gave the command. The president came to public, on public TV, said he doesn't have good knowledge of who actually ordered the military into the streets. And that tells you about high level of informalization of power during an election. Munangawa was not himself in Zimbabwe. Neither is he himself today. And I'm mentioning that simply because there are more, inf more powerful actors and players in an electoral process who do not hold any official position anywhere. Maybe that's a discussion we can have. Those people who have got the power to control and to give directions in an electoral si situation are not authoritative, authoritatively holding any position uh, office that you can say that so and so is the one responsible for this. There is high level informalization of power during elections and orders come from different places and that's what I'm calling having elections sometimes without constitutionalism. Those are issues we may want to start paying attention to but in Zimbabwe paying attention to new legal framework is important and in Kenya here uh, paying attention to constitutionalism is important. The second thing we have got to agree in Africa is that the electoral, po electoral system of first past the post is faulty. 
We inherited it. It's about 50 years old in some countries. It's 30 years old. It's 20-something 20 20 years old in Zimbabwe because Zimbabwe changed from proportional representation uh, to uh, 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 majoritarian system. But that electoral system was faulty for a number of reasons. It does not create opportunities for inclusive politics. It creates opportunities for a winner-take-all take all, and then creates opportunities for marginalization of those who do not win the election. It is wrong, and the countries, many countries are actually changing away from it to proportional or mixed member proportional representation, but it's an issue we need to start paying attention to because it leads to exclusion of important segments of population. In some countries, it leads to marginalization of regions and ethnic communities because every region has got its own community. Even in Zimbabwe, we may want to start talking about high-level marginalization of certain segments of the population on basis of first-past-the-post-electoral system. But we are not paying attention to it. In Kenya here, when we started paying attention to it, some members of parliament said that it's civil society and academia who want to get, to get into parliament through the wrong door. And therefore, no one paid attention to it. It's something that we need to start paying attention to. The second thing that I'm being warned, the second thing that has come out is political parties are functionalized in nature. They are not institutionalized. But even worse more, in many countries, political parties represent ethnic cleavages and divisions that characterize those countries. So political parties are not inclusive. The opposition political parties sometimes are also comprised of certain sections, certain regions of our country without the national agenda. So we tend to lose the national agenda very, 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 very quickly uh, as a result of the political parties and their functionalized uh, uh, nature. And the third thing that comes out is the election management body, not because of its independence, but some of what I talked about uh, later in terms of political uh, 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 preparedness. And the last two things that I would like to mention is the absence of the rule of law, uh, with regard to um, uh, uh, electoral processes and um, uh, when we are ad administering elections. We throw the law out of the window and use the law only on circumstances or when we know it is favoring us. But we also forget about checks and balances. The institutions that run the uh, elections and those superintend over the elections are not independent. Everybody in Zimbabwe is expecting the courts to rule differently because they are saying Kenya ruled differently and therefore there is something to learn from Kenya about. So Kenya is being looked upon as an opportunity to learn, but I don't think the judges in Zimbabwe, given the experience of 2008 and 2013, and Burundi's experience of judges running away from Burundi, uh, even Burundi collect, uh, conducts elections. In fact, they had a Harambe uh, just the other day for elections because no one is giving them money. But given the experience of judges running away from countries because of fear to make the brave decisions. I don't think some courts will be in a position to rule the way they want. But there is also the tendency to judicialize elections in Africa. Judicialization of elections is becoming a common phenomenon because elites are scared of resolving their own differences. And therefore they carry disputes away from the political terrain to the courts. And in the process, the courts become politicized. And because they are politicized, they are, they are compelled to, to resolve what would be political disputes 
And in the process of addressing political disputes, then the, the courts tend to reflect the image of that particular country. It's a danger to the courts. It's a danger to the judiciary. We need to start rethinking how to prevent judicialization and the impact of judicialization in the manner that we have seen it uh, uh, happening. Glandwell, if you allow me, let me just, just uh, raise a number of policy issues that need to be paid attention to. Ladies and gentlemen, I think let's forget that elections are lost at other electoral processes. When I look at Africa, elections are lost at vote tallying and transmission processes. I have found not actually to observe election electoral process again, but I'll be going to the tallying centers at night. I'll collect details from every polling station and the national constituency tallying center and then see how that result is moving across the board with an Excel sheet. That's now what I've decided to be my next hobby. I'm going to look for funds to see whether we can have a small number of people to help do that. Let's collect elections, and in the evening now, the work of actually observing elections begin at night, and is guided by an Excel sheet. Very simple things, that, because I think that's most important. But for civil society, I think let's not forget that, I mean, let's forget that election is about the law. It, is, it has nothing to do with the law. It has everything to do with politics. So we need to ask ourselves, how do we call it, collect productive politics of an election in order to have an election that is inclusive and results that are inclusive? Because without inclusive results and without inclusive leadership coming out of an election, people will be having grievances. And what I'm calling inclusive here is simply because of ethnic cleavages in the country. Some regions of the country will feel included, other regions will feel excluded. In fact, when we talk about Kenya, one may want to ask you, what Kenya are you talking, which Kenya are you talking about? Even in Zimbabwe, when you speak, you may want to ask, are you talking from Matabele land experience or Mashona land experience? Um, there is a study that has been done as, uh, recently, I think by Africa that looks at how people perceived elections of 2013 or 2017. You look at it and you laugh because we are not one country. It is yes for some, it is no for others. It's green for some, it's white for others. So even when we say Kenyans are frustrated with elections, we need to start saying, first of all, even the concept of Kenya is becoming difficult to appreciate because instead of elections unifying a country, they are dividing a country. Common in Uganda, common in Zimbabwe, common in Tanzania. Zanzibar and Tanzania are no longer the same. They are different. In fact, when you go to Tanzania, you hear people talking increasingly about Tanganyika, meaning the other side. So I'm simply saying we need to start thinking about elections as political and start asking ourselves, how do we do elections as politics? We move away from these technical administrative things of even workshops. We start paying attention to, I don't know what it means, but I think we need to move away and start doing elections as politics. And I think Kenya's experience of 2002 is where we did elections as politics when civil society decided to engage with the opposition directly and the government directly to discuss politics. And to say, even if you are forming a coalition, we shall come in that coalition as civil society groups to watch over what you are doing. It may be called corruption, call it, give it any other name you may want to call it, but we need to start looking at elections as politics and start understanding from inside. What are the things we need to pay attention to? 
I've already mentioned the need to pay attention to tallying of elections, as Willis uh, said. And that's where we need to start investing a lot of energies on across Africa. And in fact, most important is to look at the movement of numbers from a polling station to the world level in Zimbabwe, to the to constituency tallying center. By the time you reach the, you reach the national center, you want to see whether your numbers have changed in any way. Unless we do that, then we are observing nothing. Tell the international observers to stop moving from the tarmac now to buy computers. It's cheaper. Sit somewhere and just follow your numbers across. I've talked about elections, um, the need to pay attention to inclusive politics, and I think we need to pay attention much more on this, so that any party that comes to power has got an inclusive leadership. Anyone who comes to power through an election, that election is inclusive and produces inclusive results, and people, not, people in any part of the country will not feel uh, um, um, excluded. The third thing I think we need to pay attention to is let's start paying attention to uh, the worrying phenomenon of elections and the courts or judicialization of elections. Judicialization of elections is resulting in giving courts the character of a country. I don't know what's going to be the outcome in Zimbabwe, but the outcome is going actually to reflect very badly on the judiciary in one or the other. Because we are dealing with matters that elites have not been able to resolve on their own, and they want someone else to, to, take, to, to take the bite for them. Um, the things that uh, we need to pay attention to is that I think in, uh, across Africa, let's start paying attention to the electoral system. Let's change the electoral system. In Kenya here, we are completely lost because we have six harmonized elections, and all of them are first past the post. Even if the presidential has got a runoff component, it's a waste of time when the others are first, first past the post. I don't see why we should be having MPs and senators on first past the post rather than majoritarian system, because MCAs are enough to represent the people at that particular level. If we want to mix, remember, proportional representation at the parliamentary level, we, should have, we shall have less, fewer numbers of MPs and the rest. Um, but we just talked about the cost of elections. The cost of elections increases on basis of trust. The more you lose trust in each other as a country, the more the cost of that election. I don't know whether Australia has got the cheapest election, uh, Willis. I think, uh, is it on Gambia or Australia? Those people vote in pebbles, with pebbles. That's in Gambia, right? But in Australia, if I'm not wrong, it's open basket. You go and put things in an open basket and you go. And it's managed even by a, a clerk from uh, the uh, government ministry. Now, I'm simply saying that actually the more we continue losing faith in each other, not full losing even faith in the electoral process, the, moment, the more we continue losing faith in our leadership and the more the divisions continue to deepen, the more expensive the election is going to be. As we tend to secure it, thinking that uh, uh, better biometrics, better this will lead to this and that, uh, it's not. The opposition needs to be advised. The opposition in Zimbabwe registered very few numbers in Bulawayo, very few numbers in Harare, very few numbers in Matabeleland, especially Matabeleland South, if I'm not wrong. And that's a trend virtually everywhere. As I said, they are passionate, but they don't register. So how do you expect to change government when you have no numbers? I, I, if I had time, I would have actually get, gotten into numbers to show the areas compa comparing them with 2013 and why the opposition was messing up in Zimbabwe and they were thinking that they would win. 
no, no, not that I'm saying they did not win or they won, but I think if you lose at that opportunity of voter registration, then you are losing a, a very important moment. Um, and I think as civil society organizations paying attention to voter registration and improving on uh, uh, voter registration is important. But the primaries is an important observation to make. The reason why Sano PF has won many majority parliament, uh, party positions, MP positions, is because of how MDC conducted party primaries, and most importantly, the divisions within MDC, with MDC Alliance and MDC, uh, MDCT. That acrimony within an opposition itself results in you having poor candidates or candidates who will share votes. And that, that's a common phenomenon here in Kenya. When, party, when internal governance lacks in a party, when there's no internal democracy, you end up having the wrong, uh, the wrong, uh, the, the wrong candidates uh, uh, virtually uh, everywhere. So I'm simply saying that political parties have got, although they are not even political parties, these are vehicles to transport leaders from an election to another. In other, uh, in other places, they are ethnic welfare associations uh, waiting to prepare for ethnic welfare of certain communities. Um, but whatever name we give them, uh, party primaries need to be uh, 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 strengthened because it's from party primaries that they can produce capable leaders, those who can compete with the ruling parties. Uh, failure to do that will continue uh, putting us in, uh, in the same discussion uh, way in, uh, way out. Let me stop there, ladies and gentlemen, and say that I think we need to start paying attention to elections from a very different point of view. Let's start thinking about elections from a political point of view and starting saying that we need to do politics. Let's start investing in technology to look at vote telling and transmission of results because that's where things uh, go wrong. And finally, the electoral system of first past the post is an issue we need to start paying attention to if we want to avoid conflicts because it creates exclusion. And if it creates exclusion, it doesn't provide opportunities for the entire country to be included. We need to look for an opportunity to create inclusive politics where no single segment of the society or individual is left because of an opposition and because of an election. And elections have become a threat to democracy. Uh, they are actually dividing people more than uniting them. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. That was a tour de force. Um, thank you very much, uh, Karuti. Um, he asked a lot of uh, thought-provoking questions. I think the presentation was very clear, um, but there were some questions which struck me in particular. For example, do elections mean the same thing to everyone? Hmm? Uh, and you know, deciding who are we? What is Kenya? What is Zimbabwe? Who are, who, who are we? And uh, other such issues which I think you know, relate to the software of the problem, not the hardware of uh, acquiring <clears throat> more uh, technology. And there are donors in the room. I hope they heard uh, Professor's plea for uh, some funds to focus on the issues that he would like to focus on. Um, <clears throat> But we asked the question at the very beginning, do we want to continue tinkering with, with systems or do we want to start asking much more fundamental questions, regardless of the, the good uh, uh, contributions that were made uh, about the, you know, the need to change the structure of, of elections or you know, uh, the, the dangers of judicialization of elections, etc. 
You're listening to a discussion on the futility of elections in Africa to vote or not to vote. Stay tuned. So I think I would, I would like to open the floor now because people have been patient and have sat for a very long time um, and, and listened to these, uh, to these inputs. So I'm going to open the floor, and I already see a hand up. Um, and before we go further, I want to, I want to apologize for the uh, lack of gender balance in the panel. We were very conscious of it but felt we couldn't uh, do much at that stage. But I think Shuvai and I sort of... Uh, make up in some small way for that. So, Glenn, I hope you can accept that. So I'm going to first go to, um, to uh, Maina. Uh, uh, and when you please, uh, please, uh, when you stand up, give your name, organization, affiliation, if you have one. Remember, we are being taped on radio, so not everyone knows what BOMAS or Chebukati is <laughs> in this world. So um, say, state your name and your organizational affiliation and, and then your question or comment. So I'm going to let Mina speak, and then um, my Martha from Zimbabwe, uh, Jamie Simeka, and uh, James Gondi. And then I'll come back. Thank you very much, and thank you, gentlemen, for, for the wonderful presentations. I just want to, and I'm going to, try, I'm going to be very brief, but I just want to just raise, first of all, some, some uh, responses to Karuti, my, my friend, Professor Karuti, uh, because I'm hoping that he, he was misspeaking rather than, than, than very deliberate. I'm not sure, Karuti, that you can, you can argue that when the, when the army shoots people in the streets that they are reducing violence. I'm sure, I think, I hope you meant to say they're reducing that the people don't protest. Because armies, when they shoot, are increasing violence. And I think that's something we have to be very clear. So I think that's the first one I wanted to clarify. The second thing is, is, you know, I think we are assuming that courts are something above everybody else and in political. The law is a tool of politics, has always been. Courts have always been politicized. And that's a reality of our lives. It is indeed another venue, another avenue for us to, to express our political battles as much as everywhere else. I mean, it's, it, does, it seems to me to say that politicians should go and sort the, the issues out there in, the, in politics and don't come to court. The court is another venue for, of battle, of political, of political uh, interventions. It has to be used. And we should not downplay it. In fact, we should keep pushing them and because it is, it is also, I mean, we are talking about so voting is not, is not, is a, is a, it's a right. And courts are the venue for discussing rights. The right to vote is important. So I, I'm not so sure why this whole anti-justice, anti-courts is, is such a big thing. The, the third thing I wanted to go to ask is, is, and, and yeah, just another thing is that in, in classifying EMBs as politically, I think it's said politically incompetent, we are being, we are being, I think you're being very kind. They're not politically incompetent. Then if they are technically competent, then they just don't have political will. They have made a decision well in advance. And no matter what we do, no matter how many people we register, they will come up with that view. So when you say that in Zimbabwe, uh, the military had put in a leader seven months before, how did you expect the military will then hand, hand over? It doesn't matter even if uh, MDC had registered the whole country. The result would be the same. So I think we are, we, are, we are playing here with trying to blame the opposition, trying to blame the weaker party, when, when indeed we should be focusing our attention on our guns, on those who have power. It is, not, it is, it is, it is easy to say people don't, and I'm also not sure that people who are in the opposition do not register. If 65% of our population is under 35 and 70% is under the age of 40, these people are registering. They are, they are out there. 
But we want to blame them. We want to say, oh, oh, MDC did not win because people didn't register. Oh, ODM did not win because people didn't register. No, 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 no. They didn't win because their votes were stolen. Simple. That's the answer. So we go around and try and make it look as though it's always different. The last thing I want to, in terms of, 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 uh, of responding to you, Karuti, is the argument that the presidency is not important or is less important than other political positions. I don't think so. I don't think so in any of these countries. As long as the presidency is directly elected, it remains vital to people because it is a presidency that determines who joins the army. Who joins the police? Who joins NYS? Which, who, who gets what parastatals? Where farming implements go? Where milk is gotten from? Where, you know, it is everything. The presidency is everything. And people do realize that. I think you see that. Just my last point now outside of this is this. First of all, I think for me, we have to get donors out of elections. Out of funding election EMBs. The EMB must be funded directly by taxpayers alone. Every time we have had these donors coming in, they are the ones who are the, at the forefront of trying to legitimize that EMB because they have put some money in. They are trying to make it clean when it is dirty. And we've got to get them out of it. Let EMBs be funded by, the, by us as taxpayers. And then they must be accountable to us as taxpayers and not to that. Secondly, the, the thing to watch out for as we are looking ahead, if an EMB is doing its procurement wrong and doing it illegally, then what, why do we think it will not steal your votes? If it can steal in procurement, it will steal votes. That's, the answer is the same. The third thing is that I think we must start defining these results that happen in Kenya, that happen in Zimbabwe, by the real terms. That these are civilian coups. They are coups. When the wrong people are... And, and if, as Willis told us, if a, a chairperson cannot... You cannot think a chairperson can, can announce somebody else different then we are, we are in trouble. And I think, and I'm glad that Miss, that uh, the, the real governor of Kirinyaga is here because she can tell you about rigging in, in a real sense of what happens. Because once, because this is beyond, it's beyond what happens, what you do. It's, you're being rigged on, you're being rigged. It happens from the beginning. So I think let's be, let's be clear and put our emphasis where the problem actually is. Yes, there are issues for us to look at, but I think if we, if we, decide that we want to we want to justify if you wish we want to justify the the stealing of an election yes then we can do so easily but i think we've got to be clear these elections are stolen they are coups and that makes it everything easier thank you thank you we can always count on minor kiai to clarify issues and call them by their by their names uh, and I, I, I do want to, uh, since Mina has mentioned it, I do want to recognize the presence of uh, Honorable Martha Karua in the audience, the people's <laughs> governor. <laughs> and, and we're very glad that, that, uh, that you're attending. I think Martha was next, and after that, Jane, Jamie. Huh? Uh, th thank you to the esteemed panelists. Mine is um, um, a comment in two parts. Uh, the first one is... Uh, whether the, the, the panelists uh, feel that uh, elections, both in Kenya and in Zimbabwe, uh, also uh, re reflect the fractured realities of our countries. And I didn't hear the mention of, uh, you know, gender harassment, misogyny in politics uh, in elections. And uh, I think it was peripheralized in uh, Zimbabwean elections whether it was the treatment of uh, candidates, the treatment of even the, the, the ZEC chairperson. I mean, it was not an attack on the ZEC chairperson uh, uh, in, 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 in terms of the position that she occupied, but it was an attack on her as a woman, the threats to rape her, uh, I mean, uh, you know, downplaying the way she looks and, and things like that. I think 
people were mum. The women's movement in Zimbabwe kept quiet. The Zimbabwean uh, Gender Commission did not even issue statements. And I think these are some of the issues that we need to really focus on rather than uh, the overall prize of who wins. Because if uh, uh, we are talking about inclusive politics, it also includes how uh, we treat each other as men and women in society. And then the second point that I also want uh, to raise is this whole notion of manufactured dissent and manufactured crisis. Do you see it playing a role in our politics, whether it's the way the opposition conducts itself? Because what we are beginning to see is also the isomorphic mimicry that happens in the uh, conduct of opposition. The same suppression, the same uh, violence, the same uh, tactics that are exclusionary, that are undemocratic, you begin to see them being reflected. Shouldn't we also begin to discuss how opposition conducts itself, how it handles its, its primaries, how sometimes also some of their uh, statements can be uh, qualified as inflammatory and inciting? Uh, we are also uh, beginning to realize that we, we are losing the, the space for dialogue. Even if um, the election uh, commissions try to include uh, structures of dialogue like the multi-party liaison committees, the special courts to deal with uh, election violence and things like that. But I don't, think, uh, I, I don't think because of the trust deficit that already exists in countries like Zimbabwe, people will not see the value and the worth of these structures. How can we make these structures work in order to uh, try and uh, uh, reduce the tension that already uh, exists uh, when it comes to the conduct of elections? And then I also want to uh, talk about uh, the crisis of expectations. And I think it, it affects uh, many African countries where people overpromise and then they tend to underdeliver. It happens with the ruling parties, it happens with the opposition parties, where voters are taken as guinea pigs and also they are they're, they're used and abused in terms of the, the promises that are coming from the candidates which we know they might not necessarily be true. So elections at the end of the day, they end up being a charade and an activity that is just used for people to gain into power uh, to commodify the struggle for democracy when at the end of the day it's about access to resources and access to state uh, funding and uh, um, state machinery. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Simeha. Who do you work for? <laughs> for Kenya. I work for Kenya. <laughs> I would like to work for the people's governor and get her sworn in. <laughs> um, yeah, let me say a few things, you know, from the, you know, uh, wonderful uh, presentations that have been made this morning. They've triggered some thoughts in my mind that I wish to share. And the first one is, uh, Karuti, I also hope that you misspoke, because I heard you say that the military shot people, then violence reduced, and I cringed when I heard that. But maybe, maybe, yeah, so maybe it was uh, just a slip. I think... How you analyze elections on, and, and make a decision or even form an opinion on whether we should still have faith in them as options for making leadership choices or not depends on how you characterize elections. You know, um, because I think, I'm just hearing from the presentations, there's uh, oftentimes, in my opinion, a mischaracterization of elections as contests and or disputes between elites. So then, you know, who, you know, so who are the voters? What is their role in these contests and disputes? 
Are these just contests and disputes between elites? Probably they are, but I think it's a mischaracterization. In fact, when you speak about that in relation to the judiciary uh, prof, judiciaries ideally should mainly be for the weak, and they must play a role, especially for the weak uh, participants, actors in, in elections and other contests. So we, 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 I think necessarily they must be part of our electoral processes. But then perhaps more fundamentally, let me say this. Our elections are a traumatizing experience. Is it by default? I do not think so. I think it's by design. That they are designed to be so traumatizing that a majority of us should be afraid of them, should just keep off. So that those who make decisions using elections as a veneer find it easy. They don't have to go through the trouble that Willis was spelling out there. So that they find it easy to make these decisions and give these decisions legitimacy. Um, and that is why you talk of those exit options. You know, just exit from the political process or actually exit physically from your country because elections are just so traumatizing. It is by design that even to Peasants, elections have to be given such a terrible name that people say if it means that our children dying, if it means us getting hot, if it means us losing the, uh, the, the, what we lose, then we'd rather not. In the room is um, looking at elections at a distributive level. So therefore discussing the electoral management agencies, the actors like political parties, the politicians, the judiciary, um, civil society, academia, and so on and so forth. But I think elections in African countries, most certainly in this country, in our country, Kenya, uh, are just a tool that uh, you know, a small group of people use to give legitimacy to decisions they have already made. Elections, in my opinion, are no longer an option for making leadership choices. When we look at the distributive level, you know, how we manage them, who runs the elections, who contests, who does this, and so on and so forth. But when we look at the constitutive level, the level of the state, because ideally the elections should, elections should, con should help us to continue to shape and give the, our state character. But then the core, um, in terms of management of public affairs, is the state. The few people who are in charge of the state, in my opinion, from independence, make decisions, and then decide which tool they will use to give these decisions legitimacy. And if we want to hack what happens in our elections in Zimbabwe, in Kenya, in Malawi, Uganda, and so on, I think our focus must be the state. In whose interest are all these dirty things happening? In whose interest does a whole chairman of an electoral commission agree to look so stupid in public that they don't care, you know, looking extremely stupid, making the most weird decisions, contradicting themselves, breaking the law, justifying nonsense. But they continue to, in whose, is it really in their interest? I do not think so. I think it's in the interest of other people who are much higher than them. And it's these people that if we want to change, we must focus on. It is a conspiracy of a few who are, uh, have a stranglehold in our states that we must focus on that conspiracy, break that conspiracy, 
before we begin to think about how we reorganize our elections in Africa for them to have meaning. Because look, finally, elections are about power and choices. In fact, a very special choice. Because if I'm making choices between Mandazi and Samosa, I am taking. But the choices in elections, ideally, is handing over power. You are choosing whom to hand over part of your power. But in this case, we've been made so powerless, we have no power to hand over. It is other people who decide, and then they give us an opportunity to be part of their scheme of legitimizing their decisions. So the citizens who ought to be the owners of the power, who then hand over a bit of this power to the people they ideally elect, are so demobilized, so disempowered, that we cannot really say that we are participating in elections that are, are about choices for who should be in power or who we should give part of our power to. So in my opinion, the question on elections should shift and go to the state, the structure of the state, who is in charge of this state, you know, in whose interest they are having this stranglehold on this state. And, it, you know, if you want to... You know, analyze elections, observe elections, uh, study elections, and so on. Anything goes. An election will be interest and interesting and exciting. But if you look at the question of your personal power, you're actually an, exist an existential thing, then you'll want to focus on the core of the problem, which, in my opinion, is the structure of the state and who is in charge and in whose interest the dirty things that happen on this continent actually happen. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jamie, for, those, for that thought-provoking in, uh, input, and we'll pursue it as uh, the panelists respond. James. Hello, my name is James Gondi, and I have just a question and comment for Professor Karuti and, to some extent, uh, Glenn Pani. Um, elections are the conventional way through which citizens um, exercise their sovereignty, and in that regard, popular sovereignty. Now, um, what we've discussed here is that that channel has been taken away from African citizens. If you look at the nature of the colonial state, um, Africans did not have the right to suffrage, the right to vote, so as to exercise their sovereignty. So uh, my question is, are we back in the colonial state? Secondly, I would like to speak to the issue of state capture or elite capture, where uh, political elites and small ruling elites capture public processes such as elections and resources for private gain. Um, this is what has happened in Zimbabwe. This is what has happened in Kenya and elsewhere. How have democracies traditionally then, through history, reclaimed their state um, from those elites who have captured them and have they reclaimed their sovereignty? Thank you. Um, I think because the panelists had quite some time to talk, we're going to let the um, participants uh, also contribute. Um, I think... Um, Martha would like to say something. And uh, so one, and then you, uh, the lady in the back, and Peter. Thank you. Okay, I want to um, agree with Karuti that uh, transmission and telling has a lot to do with it. I personally think I lost during transmission and telling. And voting goes on, you know, relatively well in many places, but even when we have electronic tallying and transmission, there is somewhere it is interfered with. And in Kenya, you remember, results on the portal were not matching 
the results of the forms. And eventually they removed the portal. So those of us who are in court can no longer use the portal if you had not already uh, gotten that information, which means there's a disconnect somewhere there. Um, I want to say the power of incumbency cannot be overlooked. Even when we have in institutions that begin with the one independent, like the Kenyan Independent Electoral Commission, they are still beholden to their appointing authority. And therefore, those who are suggesting that... Um, I had a suggestion, I don't know whether it was from Karuti or from the others, that uh, the parties should manage elections. I actually think we must start thinking of uh, localizing or devolving the elections. In Denmark, they don't have an electoral body and they don't have electoral petitions. What happens is that in every district, I don't know whether they call them districts, but they are sort of like counties. I can't remember the exact name. They, the political parties sit down, organize the elections, and civil servants will be picked at random to conduct the actual process. They also oversee. They don't just plan. They oversee. And I'm imagining like if it was Kirinyaga County, where people, people will know each other within a local area. So you can know the sort of people you can trust. The political committee is the overall committee. You are competitors. Therefore, you will police each other. If there is any dispute anywhere, during the day or during the uh, counting, you solve it yourselves amongst each other. I think our constitution begins with we the people. So why don't we get down and manage? In Kenya, manage our elections and in Africa. Because you will elect a good person or suggest a good person to the electoral body. And in Kenya, it is supposed to be transparent. But in Kenya, we have learned how to manipulate even public processes, where the panel can give high marks to a non-performer or give good marks to everybody, and the lowest is the one who ends up being taken. I think it's time we brought the election, uh, whatever, closer to the people. What would that mean? It would mean the security forces in that local area We'll be taking orders on election day from that committee. So nobody will have power over the other. Because in my experience, the security forces are used in that process. When they are doing wrong tallies and whatever, they'll have come and occupied all those centers. Because they anticipate there will be trouble. So instead of uh, overseeing good elections, they use force to oversee rigged elections. We can't exhaust that, but I'm thinking it's something we have to start thinking about. In Kenya, we have overhauled the electoral body because I've heard Zimbabwe would like to overhaul. We actually sent everybody home, including the clerks. It hasn't changed. Actually, it has gotten worse. Because even professionals are ready to, for hire, for rent-seeking. The clerk will be ready to be hired. The voters are also no better. We have taught them to receive gifts from us, so they are waiting to be hired. Everybody is for hire. So we can't trust each other. We've lost trust. And the only way to build trust is to police each other at the point that matters. It means that committee will be certifying these are the actual votes each of the candidates got. 
you'll be certifying for your competition, the competition is certifying for you. And you'll be solving whatever problems that arise. I think we, we just need an, a different format. And also, they'll be cheaper. What has made Kenyan election the most expensive? It's not the trust issue, Karuti, in my view. It is corruption. The person who gets the electoral body exaggerates the cost of everything because there is his percentage involved in there. There is no way the electoral commission can be getting services at five, six times the cost you and me get them, even if it's hiring a taxi. This is pure corruption. And somebody has said there, if you are procuring corruptly, you are also going to steal the vote. So we need actually to check all those things. And I want to go very quickly. Uh, I've also said, what about, what is our role? What is the role of the courts? I want to agree with Maina, you cannot dislodge the courts. Even in America, which is an old democracy, never mind how the court decides, it's a cool-off zone. So instead of you punching each other, you go to the cool-off zone. The results, we cannot guarantee you will be good. But in Kenya, we have to keep on and everywhere else pushing our courts to stop giving decisions that are funny when you look at the Constitution. We have to put them to their limit. And who knows, one day we'll get another decision like the one we got from the Supreme Court. Why would a court of law accept the proposition that the irregularities did not affect the elections? Why are we having election laws and regulations? If we reduce them to nothing, then we better not even go to court. We have to tell people loud and clear, and the courts have to support this proposition, however much we have to knock on their door, that irregularities are not acceptable, especially when they are deliberate. And it should not be for me to prove to the court that the irregularities affected the election. It is for the electoral body to show that the uh, elections they conducted are verifiable. Our constitution, in my view, has shifted the duty that when I complain, it ought to be the electoral body who are proving that what they did was according to the constitution because they are the ones who have the duty, not me. And I think that all those institutions are important. What about me as an individual? I think we also have a role. And I've said that if we devote them to the local level, we shall hold each other to account. I have a feeling why this rigging occurs and gets worse every time. It's because people are never held to account. That clerk who is bribed and inflates, that commissioner in the electoral commission, whether it is chicken gate or whatever gate, and we let them just disappear, it encourages the next one. So you get to that position and you are rigging. What I think we must do, and some of us are proposing to do, not tomorrow but today, is if you have evidence against an electoral official, offer it to the DPP and if they don't prosecute, mount private prosecution. Never mind whether there will be a conviction or not. It will send a signal to everybody that at the end of the day you carry the cross. If you have evidence against a political party, a candidate or a civilian, let us not just sit on it. We have to hold each other to account at the end of the day. Then we can start building trust. Finally, I want to say something that is really said. Yes, the power of incumbency allows the government to be on top of rigging 
at the national level and especially for the presidency. But when you look at the petitions that are coming up, you will realize rigging is shared by opposition and government. I want to talk about Kenya. Look at the governor's petitions, and I have one of them. The party that rigged me is not the party that was opposing. I was supporting the president. And all parties in that zone were supporting the president. So it is within that group that the rigging occurred. Look at Nyanza and Western. They were all largely supporting opposition. So the rigging for parliament and for whatever, it's inter-party or inter-coalition rigging. So the moment we accept that we are all fouling the elections is the moment we will begin to retrace our steps. And what happens when you, the opposition joins in rigging or sections of the opposition join in rigging at the local level. You legitimize the rigging by the government at the larger level. So what do we do? The elite capture for me is not the elite capturing the state. I want that to call the political capture. The elite capture for me is the elite being captured by the political, uh, the political barons who are ruling the country, where a majority or quite a critical number of elite think that they'll get contracts and state jobs. Something quite silly because how many people can get state jobs? Instead of waiting for an atmosphere that allows you to, to prosper in your trade, a good environment, you are looking for gifts from the state. The elites won't join political parties. They think the political parties are for the downtrodden. How then are our parties going to institutionalize how are they going to be value-driven, policy-driven, if they are not having those who have the means of helping shape those parties? Those are the problems we are having. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mashimiwa, um, for, um, for that valuable contribution. Um, we have, I think, two more, is it? The, yes, you, you had the floor. Uh, thank you very much. My name is Achieng Akana. I work for the Pan-African Citizens Network. Um, my colleague, uh, Memory, from FemNet, had to leave early and asked me to, to give some contributions on her behalf, so I'll do that first. Um, she first had, I suppose, I don't know if it's a question or a reflection, as to why um, the opposition continued to participate in elections without... Um, reformed institutions. Um, her second comment was in relation to the diaspora vote. Uh, she says that it is estimated that about three million Zimbabweans are not in Zimbabwe, and if they are not allowed to vote um, in the election, if they had been allowed to vote in the election, what would have been the dynamics, and why is the vote of the diaspora not respected? Um, and then she had a comment around voter apathy uh, to the effect that um, what contributes to voter apathy is that uh, past elections um, do not meet people's expectations and without um, the challenges of past elections being addressed uh, it makes voting uh, not relevant and makes voting not matter. Um, so now I'm speaking back as a Ching myself. Uh, my 
comments um, as I as I listen to what's happening in Zimbabwe and 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 seeing the similarities with what happened in Kenya. I'm actually thinking that there is some sort of guide on how to rig elections in the 21st century going around somewhere that we don't know about. But um, if, if supposing there is something like that going on, why isn't there a counter document that is um, really upgrading the standards that are used not only by the African Union but by international observers in terms of observing elections and declaring them free and fair or, or, or whatever they declare them these days. Um, why aren't we also pushing for a reform of how um, the observers, so to speak, look at elections and what really happens in elections on the continent? Thank you very much. And we, um, we have um, Peter yeah. de Costa, also a member of the Board of Trustees of the African Leadership Center. Thank you. I was going to introduce myself as precisely that, so I don't have to say anything else anymore. Um, I think this has been a fascinating uh, uh, discussion, and uh, so many issues have surfaced that need to be unpacked and uh, looked at in you know, more depth. Um, I think uh, <coughs> we have to recognize that Elections in our countries uh, are effectively a ritual which happen you know, with regularity um, and which we all subscribe to in one form or another, whether we register or not. Um, we've heard a lot about technocratic reforms that need to be embraced, that have been embraced in Zimbabwe, that uh, were previously embraced in Kenya, and etc. Um, but we've also heard that Elections are primarily about political engagement and about politics. Um, in my maternal country, which I won't mention, but I think Karuti alluded to it, uh, you know, uh, the, the power of incumbency is extremely important, and we have to understand that in historical context, going back to how the colonial apparatus used its power uh, to divide and rule, to bring about certain outcomes, and how our post-colonial states have actually uh, embrace the same apparatus and the same power uh, and become ever more sophisticated in ensuring that incumbency, uh, you know, reproduces itself. Um, so we can't underestimate that, except in my maternal country where the incumbent, uh, having been in power for more than two decades, couldn't even rig an election and got defeated uh, by the opposition. Uh, so you can think about which country that is. Um, there are lots of Similarities that we've observed between Zimbabwe and Kenya and other countries, but also lots of differences. And I think part of our challenge is that, you know, we tend to look at elections based on our own, our own political preferences, a lot of them parochial, a lot of them domestic, and our own desired outcomes. So I think one of the panelists talked about the importance of civil society in a given country, interrogating both the opposition and the, the ruling apparatus, uh, you know, and engaging them you know, in ways uh, that would actually improve the uh, political process and the electoral process. Um, my observation in a lot of our countries is that depending on what our political color is, <clears throat> we then turn it into a zero-sum game where it becomes about either unseating the incumbent or making sure the incumbent stays in power. So I think we need to sort of abstract a little bit, step back from what we actually think historically 
should be the desired outcome and the, the outcome that, be, that brings, you know, justice and that satisfies our own political preference and try and understand, uh, you know, more deeply uh, why elections are so flawed globally and not just in Africa, uh, if not in the process and the conduct, also in the perverse outcomes that we've seen with Brexit, we've seen them with Trump, we've seen them with Orban, we've seen them, you know, almost all of them in France. So we need to understand that after all these years of electoral democracy, there is something fundamentally wrong. There is a deep malaise uh, in, in the whole sort of assumption <clears throat> that elections uh, will solve, you know, uh, and mitigate uh, disputes uh, and that they're actually uh, important in themselves. Um, I think, you know, some of our deep malaise in the body politic, in the state society compact, relates to things like values. Uh, I think Martha mentioned corruption. <clears throat> of course, we don't get too obsessed about corruption. But we have to understand that, you know, corruption is a fundamental uh, symptom of the malaise in our societies uh, as relates to, you know, the values that we have, our children have, and so on. Um, there are issues of rule of law which are brought up important, the questions of constitutionalism, all of these things need to be tinkered with and improved upon, um, the questions of institutions uh, and, and questions of inclusive politics versus winner takes all, uh, <clears throat> but at the center of all of this is questions of integrity, you know, uh, do we as citizens have integrity, uh, whether we're operating at the national level uh, or, or engaging at the local political level, uh, are we willing to actually call out people who are not transparent and accountable, uh, and put in place mechanisms to make sure that that, that is something that you know, improves. Um, <clears throat> I tend to agree with Maina on the, I don't agree with them on very much, but I do agree with them on the judicialization of elections and the fact that it's extremely important to be able to push for rule of law <coughs> and to use the institutions. Uh, the challenge is, of course, um, a lot of judges uh, and, and, and institutions of the judiciary will not stick their necks out <clears throat> and come out with uh, rulings uh, that may endanger their lives. Um, so <clears throat> we need to work on the state, the construct of power, the fact that all of this stuff, uh, you know, is about power, ultimately. It's about perceptions that winning an election gives you access to resources. It's about perceptions that winning an election gives you access to, you know, the, the apparatus of state so that you can punish others. Uh, it's uh, all sorts of, so, but it's ultimately about power and we can't get away from that. So the question is how do you, uh, you know, make the playing field slightly more level and that's where the citizen comes in and the citizen has a pivotal role in trying to ensure that these democratic values that we all share and believe in, despite being, you know, demoralized every time there's an election, uh, are actually played out. Thank you. Thank you very much, Peter, and thank you also for um, summarizing a lot of the, uh, of the discussion and taking up a lot of uh, work away from me. Um, we have one more contribution, and if there are no burning issues, uh, I'd like to give the, panels, uh, the panelists a chance to respond because we are um, running over uh, our time. Are we okay? All right. Please. Yes, uh, thank you, everybody. I'm Moses Toffer from the African Leadership Center. Uh, my question goes to, to Tawanda and Glenn. Uh, you both uh, tend to agree that the problem is not really with elections, but the problem is with uh, 
the processes which lead to elections uh, and that there is a need to ensure uh, the implementation of reforms. And yes, that is very true, but this is not new. Even the recommendations that you talked about and you actually said that it's not new. It has been, it's a narrative which really has been there for so many, for a number of years, but nothing really changes on the ground. And even where, in cases where there are some changes, we have had situations where reforms are even manipulated. For example, the, uh, the, the posting of votes uh, on polling stations to ensure transparency. And then people are told that we are going, this is going to make us know that you have voted for this person and we are going to, to beat you and all that thing. Although, so it means, seems like some reforms may take place, but you know, we are dealing with people who are keen to manipulate reforms to their advantage. So the question is, what really has been done in order to push for reforms and what could be done and by who differently in order to ensure that those recommendations you are talking about can materialize? And lastly, there was a, co a comment on the institutionalization of political parties, especially opposition parties, that uh, opposition part parties are not institutionalized. I don't really agree with that, especially in terms of the opposition in Zimbabwe. Yes, many of the opposition political parties I have actually failed to institutionalize. But if you are talking of a political party such as the Movement for Democratic Change, because when you are talking of those variables of institutionalization, issues of leadership, issues of roots in society, issues of policy, uh, issues of ideology, you know, I, I, I believe that this, uh, the MDC has really managed to institutionalize. But you don't only talk, look at the internal variables also. You also look at the context within which a political party operates. And in Zimbabwe, you realize that the context itself has played a very important role in, in, in making it difficult for opposition political parties to institutionalize. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, um, that was a whole range of comments and questions on, on, um, on, uh, a very uh, broad uh, range of issues. So I'm going to trust that the panelists have recorded at least those comments or questions that they felt like responding to. Uh, it would be nice if you've had a direct question to respond to it, but uh, I, will, I will simply then uh, uh, give, um, call on the panelists to, to respond um, or to comment on indeed on anything. This will be the final sort of session of this, uh, of this event, uh, so I'll, I'll give you at the same time a chance to say anything that uh, you really want to have said. Um, Willis, I hope you would not mind being the first to start. Willis, being an experienced courtroom lawyer, is always ready to go. <laughs> I'm always impressed by <laughs> Thank you very much. Very briefly, number one on the issue of donor funding of elections, I do, I, I do share minor sentiments. I don't think there's any other country in the Western world where donors fund the elections process. A country can beg for funds for anything than the only sovereign duty of its citizen, which is to conduct elections. So that we need to actually go to these donors and tell them, if you must fund elections, go and fund non-state actors. You can't fund it to the state so that you become a, a senior stakeholder in our elections, even more than the voter itself. You go to the telling center, the donors have more access than political parties. 
in that particular process. So this I agree, I share that sentiment. On the second issue of when we focus on opposition political parties that they are not organized, my point is this. Even the ruling parties are not organized. They only show a semblance of organization because they benefit from the patronage of the state. You remove that state from the ruling party, that political party equally will, go, will die a natural death. Kano in Kenya, in the Moi days, had the best infrastructure and organizational ability across the entire country. But that was supported by the state. The moment they lost power to NAC, Kano is... I think one of the fringe political parties right now in this, party, in this country. If anybody was in Kenya in 1992, they would think Khan, Khan was a monolith, behemoth political party with the best institutional organization that you can ever think of. And then when we focus on political parties, their weaknesses, we are actually losing focus on what the real issue is. The real issue is not about how organized the political party is or how unprepared those political parties are to govern. The issue is the ultimate decision of the voter as expressed on election day needs to be respected. Even if they vote for a buffoon, let them have their buffoon on that day. Just tell them, this is the outcome of your voting. This is the buffoon that you've chosen. Let him lead you. You have a right to recall if your constitution so allows it. On the question of uh, going back to the colonial state uh, that Gondi say raises, I agree. Uh, if we cannot reform our elections and believe in that particular process, it's as good as going back to colonialism. Uh, we have new, new colonizers in the form of local elites. The unfortunate bit is that while in the former dispensation, the, those who are colonized were meeting to discuss and to sit down how to remove the colonialists, today we are also having our own elite conversation, uh, lamenting, reading from the Book of Lamentations on how bad things are, how bad elections are. But what are we doing to expand the democratic space by taking out these new colonizers. If we don't do so, probably some of these systems have been set up to continue operating for the next 100 years, and we are still talking. So we must actually start finding ways in which we can break down these particular systems. On the issue of localized elections as raised by Honorable Bokaro, I do agree that uh, IBC cannot run elections from the national level. There is no election management body that can run the kind of election that we have as a national project. If you have localized elections, you devolved the process, you empower local communities to be present at their locality and do their elections and announce their results, and you respect it at that particular level. When I observed elections in Congo Brazzaville, it was a very interesting process. The elections were so localized that they didn't even have a single election form. They would write the results on the, on the blackboard of the classroom. So you write the political party representatives are the ones who count the votes. The election officials work is to write down the number of what is counted. At the end of it, all they write without using a chalk on the blackboard. The votes for party X is this, the vote for party And if anybody dared rub, to them that was anathema, like how can you rub what everybody saw? That was the result. And they believed in that process. And as a community, people believed that it was almost sacrilegious to even think that you can manipulate that which has been announced in the presence of the community and the political party representatives. Uh, the last point is uh, maybe on the issue of transmission and telling of results. This is the new frontier. As um, Honorable Karoa shares our experience, all the petitions that are being done in this country, at least I've been participating in most of them and read almost all of them, the judgments that have come out, I don't think there's any petition that is challenging how people turned out to vote. 
they are largely all in agreement that the process was okay. The manipulation starts from how you translate that vote from the polling stage, how it was cast, to how you made the final declaration. It is actually transmission and tallying of the elections that is now the new frontier, that manipulation of the people's will is being undertaken. And we must focus on it. We cannot let that one go. If it means breaking down the process that we are going to do ward-based elections, every ward will do their elections, and you announce and tell us the results. Everybody do their own tallying. And uh, the math, I mean, the math becomes obvious. You remove this large bureaucracy that manipulates the process. That may be the best option for us to start considering. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, would you like to, okay, uh, Tawanda, okay. would you like to respond? I'll start from uh, the feedback um, in terms of the frontier for manipulation of elections. Uh, I'll agree definitely that the transmission process is a crucial element to watch, and uh, it was raised in, in, in by the discussant. Um, looking at our own case in Zimbabwe, it's definitely an area that we should have watched, um, how results were moving from one point to the next. The funny thing is, in Zimbabwe, the, the election commission opted to use police walkie-talkies as one instrument to transmit the results. And the question was, so where is this information being given to? Is it the election commission that is in charge of the entire infrastructure of communication? What is this? Why opt for a police radio system when the election commission should independently administer election processes? But I would also argue to say part of what we have witnessed in Zimbabwe is that there's been a decentralization of uh, spaces where elections are actually tempered with. So results transmission, yes, is definitely one area of vulnerability. But there is a real pattern of an attempt to capture voters across the election cycle that even predetermines how voters actually vote. And we were able to do case studies of by-elections in Zimbabwe where one political party would tell you before the result, before even the election, that they're going to get how many votes. And this was because they were capturing voters before the elections. And how they were doing it related to partisan distribution of food aid, where the vote is attached to what you can gain in a very poor rural community. Now, the danger of focusing on the transmission of results in the case of Zimbabwe is you tally what has already been compromised. So at the end of the day, you can run your PVT. It's telling you how people have voted, but it's not giving you the context. It's not putting in the qualitative aspects of that vote. Has that vote been freely cast for it to genuinely reflect the will of the people? And that is the danger with... Um, with the elections that we've had, where the, the, the process of tempering with the election has been long drawn. So, so coming to some of the issues that, that have been raised, um, I, I, I would say the courts remain a crucial frontier in terms of dealing with, with elections, particularly in Zimbabwe. And I'll say this is so because in court you have two options. Well, it's either you're going to win the case or you're going to lose it. In the case of Zimbabwe, the Constitutional Court's decision is final, especially in the context of what is being discussed now. But the intention of going to court, especially in the case of Zimbabwe, is not necessarily just to win it, given um, some of the noted weaknesses in terms of our institutions. 
it's also an opportunity to highlight what the issues have been and to expose the issues. So when things are being filed um, into court, they become a matter of public record. You're putting responsible authorities on the spot to account for what has happened. Without going to court, you can't do this. Especially if you've got weak institutions that refuse to be accountable. So the court remains a crucial frontier in terms of dealing with these matters. Especially when you have a very strong state that refuses to be accountable. Um, there, there was a question relating to whether uh, it's by default or, or by design. It wasn't a question, it was a statement. And, and I hear this, that part of what we've witnessed across the continent, particularly in, in both uh, Kenya and Zimbabwe, is that there is a deliberate pattern of how elections are actually administered. You can, you can pick the pattern as you're interacting with key electoral processes. And this question, whether it's by design or by default, is an important one. Because in the case of Zimbabwe, there is clear evidence of the election commission actually opting to create an impression of being cooperative with election stakeholders. But when it matters the most, actually closing the door. Then the question becomes, are they doing it uh, because they are weak institutionally or it's actually designed to do this? So there is a growing pattern on the continent, especially in Southern Africa at least, where the behavior of the election commission can actually be tracked with the pattern of them acting in a manner that is supposed to predetermine the electoral outcome. The tragedy that we then have is we tend to then raise these issues because the result has been announced. And that gives an impression, it comes to the question of civil society and their role. If we tend to then be reactive because the result has come, and we have not been raising these issues across the election cycle, then we create the impression that we are being political as well, and we have an interest. And I agree that we need to be able to rise above the issues. So the only way we can do it is to sustain an engagement process with the election process in a manner that allows us to critique and preempt a lot of the issues beyond the results. In the case of Zimbabwe, we made it clear um, just like we also made it clear ahead of the 2018 elections that it was not necessary to proceed with the election. It was not necessary for Zimbabwe to go to the 2018 elections because signs were there. You know, people say, give us a signal. The signal was given that this, this election was, was going to be disputed. The signals were there, but we still proceed with the elections. But the role of civil society must be to stand their ground not on the basis of the outcome of the election, but testing how we've gotten to the outcome of the election. And doing it once results have been announced, and only when results have been announced, will give the impression that we have an interest and we wanted a particular outcome. So that's one of the things that we definitely will probably need to, to, to battle with. The question of the diaspora vote in Zimbabwe, it's, it was a huge battle. The courts decided that um, we will not have the diaspora vote. When you go to our constitution, the right to vote is given to everyone. You see, part of, again, a big problem with Zimbabwe is that there is an impression created that there is no diaspora voting in Zimbabwe, which is not true. Diaspora voting actually exists in Zimbabwe. People on government business outside Zimbabwe do vote. They are allowed to vote via post. It was a political decision, in my view, to deny the diaspora vote. 
So there were so many excuses that were given. I mean, if you take the responses that came from the state from 2014 to 2017, you'll hear them saying the law does not provide for it as an initial response. You'll hear them say uh, we, we can't have it because you, we need to administratively plan for it. And then you'll hear around 2017 after the military intervention, the president saying we would want to have it, but we don't have time to do it. So the narrative has changed. And the manner in which that narrative around the diaspora vote has changed gives the impression that there was a political decision not to have it as far back as 2014. So the diaspora does exist. People on government business vote via post. It's the same right that can be extended to everybody else in Zimbabwe. But there's just not been enough political will to do it. SADAC principles and guidelines now provide for the diaspora vote. So there is no real reason why we shouldn't have it. But I'll suppose for the 2018 election, there was just no political will to extend it. So it's a battle that we must continue um, going into the post-2018 uh, elections. The question of apathy based on past experiences, definitely. But the interesting bit about this Zimbabwean election is that when voter registration started in, um, in September, in under seven, eight months, we got 5.695 million people registering to vote. 5.6 million. Well, I'll not talk about the other figures because right now the election commission has actually just revised the total number of registered voters yet again. So we've got three figures that they're using as the total number of registered voters. It keeps shifting. So, so this, this number in about seven months is, is, is a clear indication that Zimbabweans actually wanted to vote. But more interesting than this 5.6 million figure is the fact that you have 2.8 million new voters who registered to vote. So these are people who were not registered in the, in the, in the other voters, which was problematic. So 2.8 million in Zimbabwe is a huge number. And of this, you've got 47% being between 18 and 35. 47%. That is a huge number. So the interest to vote is actually there. But what part of what contributes to the apathy that we are likely going to see getting into the next election, unless we do something about it, is that people lose interest, interest in election because there's a constant narrative that elections are stolen. I'll tell you, from a civil society front, one of the biggest dilemmas that we had between 2013 and 2018 was to balance between highlighting the inadequacies of the election process and mobilizing people to go and register to vote. So how do you, how do you encourage people to go and vote um, when there are real issues that can undermine that vote. So how, 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 how do you say people go and register to vote, but the election process is faulty? So st trying to strike that balance was a bit of a challenge. One of the, what I personally felt as problematic is, you know, when you talk to a young person and you're saying go and register to vote, and then they say, but you say the law is flawed, and you say the electoral commission is weak. Why must I go and vote? Then I say, well, if you vote in numbers, the numbers actually make it more difficult to temper with the vote. And then they say, okay, so can you guarantee that my vote will not be stolen? And you're an outsider. You can't give guarantees that the election will not be stolen. So how do you balance that? So it's a constant balance that we need to battle with.
how do we in our narrative express the concerns around the elections but still place value in terms of getting people to participate in the election process? And it comes down to what we were talking about earlier. To then say, the definition of electoral participation by citizens has to be expanded beyond simply registering to vote, which is passive. Citizens have to begin engaging beyond casting a ballot in terms of the election. That includes watching the election process. That also includes holding those in public office accountable. So those are important elements that we need to add to the narrative. Um, there was an issue, which will be my last uh, point. Uh, there was an issue relating to the structuring of election commissions and the argument that maybe the option must be to have electoral commission that comprise of representatives of political parties. I personally would think that that's a shortcut to the problem. It means that at every turn, because new political parties will constantly emerge, we need to be revisiting who is on the commission. But the problem is the structure, is the structural arrangements of the, of, of, of these institutions. So you have a situation where, uh, an election institution as it's currently portrayed in our country and probably in Kenya, which is why it doesn't help to change the individuals. The entire structure of, of the commission is a structure that accommodates partisan conduct. It accommodates unaccountable conduct. It accommodates a lot of bias. So if we deal with the individuals, we're dealing with half the problem. Because yes, we probably need to have people of goodwill in these commissions. But let's set up institutions that can, that will reject people without the goodwill. Institutions that will reject practices that will compromise the electoral process itself. If the investment is in the institutions, then we are likely going to build structures that have the capacity to deliver a credible election process. So for instance, if, even if you, you get a chairperson of the electoral commission appointed in a very non-biased manner. But they're getting into an institution that is whose practice and conduct is already compromised because there are no safeguards institutionally to say if you come in here and you support one political party, the system will reject you and there are consequences. If you take an angel and place them in that kind of an institution, you're still likely going to get some huge vulnerabilities. So the investment around election administration must be to build institutions first before you get people coming into the institutions. So, so, so I will leave it there. But again, in closing, to just say the tallying in Zimbabwe has been problematic. I would agree. Now, the figures keep changing. The election commission has considered that they made mistakes. So somebody just tweeted, how do you trust an election commission? That can't even end. So, so you've got a, a serious problem because at the end of the day, how valid is the result that they announced if they're now conceding and revising what they announced? And it comes back to exactly what was said. The, the issue of verifiability of the election itself must not lie with uh, anyone other than the election commission. The election commissions have a responsibility to show Evidence that what they've done can be tracked, what they've done can be verified. So it must not be us taking their word for it to say these are the results. They have to be prepared to place everything on the table. Now you can't verify Zimbabwean election results at the moment because they haven't shared the voters rule that they used 
on polling day. They haven't shared the number of ballots that they issued per polling station. They haven't shared the number of assisted voters. They haven't shared a uh, number of spoiled ballots disaggregated at every station. You can't verify it. They're just figures. And they say, unless you've got evidence suggesting otherwise our figures are correct. That is a very problematic approach to, to election administration. Thank you. I'll just give a, a, quick, a quick response. Right. Uh, first and foremost, I just, um, these are my views. They might be very controversial. Feel free to quote me. A country, when it has gone through a coup, it's fractured, it's fragile, it should not have an election period. The institutions and structures are not permissible to run a proper election. You can't have oversight. You can't have independence. You can't be able to allow free access to information. You can't allow citizen participation. And therefore, running an election in that environment doesn't make sense. Zimbabwe should not have gone for an election. The SADC African Union should have declared that Zimbabwe experienced a coup. You can't have interested parties in the military conducting and running an election where you expect them to declare an opposition as having one. That's my first point. My second point is on the electoral system. Prof said we should adopt a proportional representation. I'm going to give him a short answer. Look at the Lesotho nation. Lesotho is a country, very small country. They changed the electoral system. They've got a proportional representation system. They've had more failed or collapsed governments, I, I think, I would say on the continent. Each and every time it collapses, because they are always with a hung parliament, it's simply because, and if you look at it, it was loud, it is a very good electoral system. It comes back to the political culture and the actors. That's why you have someone with two seats in that government continuously being able to control the process. The second issue about having political parties in a commission, I will refer you to Malawi. Malawi has had commissions where political parties are represented there. In 2013-2014 election were there. When it came to disclosing the results, the whole electoral commission was divided into two because they could not agree whether they're supposed to act dispassionately. So you use that as an example whether you'd want to take that route in terms of um, an electoral commission. That's very problematic. The second thing that I want, the other thing that I want to raise is the issue of observer missions. Observer missions are now a threat to democracy. If I had it my way, I would dispense with that way of dealing with, because observer missions are very problematic. They become a source of validation of very shambo elections in Africa. SADAG and AU, I don't know what you guys might think about them, but in my view, they are a lost cause. They come to a country, they declare an election before results have been announced. Two days later, results are declared, people are short. They are quiet. They haven't said anything. Honestly speaking, do you need bodies like that? This nonsense of regional solidarity, African solutions for African, they are failing. We are spending so much money on these bodies. They are in essence a threat to democracy. Because what they've done in Zimbabwe, and even after the elections here, is a disaster. No one can support that in any way. You can't support it on the basis that because we're Africans. No, it doesn't make sense. 
So I, 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 if Zimbabwe goes for a runoff, I'll be one of those individuals who'll be advocating, allow us to have that shambolic election in the absence of observers. Your presence and absence is strikingly similar. <laughs> My last point before I give to, <laughs> to Prof is the issue of misogyny. I, I want to comment on this and, um, and, and I'm not going to use the case. I, I want to give a scenario and then you answer yourself this question because the Chief Justice in Zimbabwe, there were allegations, right or wrong, I don't want to go into that. But I want to give a scenario of conflict of interest. If I am running an election as the chairperson of an electoral commission, am I supposed in any way, if I am appointed and I'm married to someone who is ZANU PF or MDC, the principles of conflict of interest should be, I should declare. If I don't declare and I go through a process and someone raises it, it's an area that can cause the neutrality of that individual to be questioned. My issue is we need to look at the incident in Zimbabwe through the lenses of conflict of interest rather than through the lenses of misogyny. Whatever other people said, I disagree with the language. The language they should have been to say, is she a neutral arbiter to this issue? We've got separation of powers. So if you're in a relationship with someone who's in the executive of another party, and you're running an election, are you neutral? That's what we should engage with. Thank you so much, guys, for inviting me here. This is my last comment. Yeah, thank you very much. I would like to be very brief and may begin by apologizing for the misspeak that I made with regard to police killing and the violence in Zimbabwe. But the point really I would like to make is that how police control crowds or protesters and intervene in protest movements are very different from how military does so. And we need to underline that. A country that calls out to the military from the barracks to face its own civilians treats the civilians as agents of another country. And that's the point I would like to stress, that the military is trained to deal with foreign external aggression. And the moment you call your own military in to, your, to deal with your own protesters, they are dealing with them the way they would deal with the external aggression. That's the point. If you haven't seen the kind of military that was poured outside the streets of Barare at the Tulling Center, please you would understand what I meant by that particular comment. I have never seen a, a military of that nature that is poured in a manner that is, the numbers were more than actually the protesters in the places where we were. And they were not shooting to scare. They are too shooting to kill. That's the point I'm making. They are shooting to kill. And the, the, the point is really made that if you call a military to intervene in a civilian situation, then uh, you are completely out of order. That, that, that's the point I wanted to make. And that's connected to what uh, James Godi was asking about the colonial state. Where did the colonial state go? Who told you it left? <laughs> Who told you the colonial state left? Yeah. Who told you the colonial state and its institutions are not intact? If the colonial state was not intact, then we would not be talking about institutions of repression. The colonial state used to rig elections even during the transition to independence, the way we have dealt with the, the rigging of elections at present. I would have loved to, 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 to uh, Maina K to be here uh, because I would li li like to stress very carefully that even if we are saying elections are stolen, 
we need actually to build a very strong opposition movement that register in large numbers so that it doesn't make a difference how you, you tinker with the, with, with the results. That's the point I was making. That when it comes to strategies for ensuring that actually you are dealing with an incumbent, the opposition parties deal with the ruling parties as if they are dealing with another party. They are not dealing with them as if they are dealing with a government that has got machinery to mobilize its own people to vote. They are dealing with the uh, ruling parties as if the ruling party and the government are different. The ruling party and the, uh, and the government in Africa are one and the same. Their parties are coordinated by civil servants and public servants. They use more public resources than ever, ever, ever uh, uh, before. Even during the one-party system, at least there was modicum of pretense. There's no pretense anymore. So what is it that we are saying? That We are simply saying, if you are an opposition, you need to make sure that you are dealing with a very different type of reality. You do not have resources. I mean, my Zimbabwe colleagues maybe are worried uh, or are afraid of saying, Zimbabwe, there are no banks with money. The opposition did not have even a single cent. The opposition did not have even a single cent, and yet ZANU-PF bought four-wheel vehicles for every member of parliament, every candidate from South Africa, double cab. I don't know why they love double cabs. Not Prandos, double cabs. Everybody double cab. Right? Everybody. And I'm serious. You know? Traditional leaders were using soft intimidation that he has talked about by virtue of their holding their own position, calling villagers to their own places and telling them how they should vote. So, Mother Karua talked about the power of incumbency, which we are not paying attention to. Opposition political parties should stop dealing with ruling political parties as if they are dealing with an equal competitor. That's the point I'm making. Very different. And that's, those are issues that we need to start reflecting upon. The issue of judicialization of courts, I think, uh, I, my apology if, my, uh, if it has been uh, uh, misinterpreted. But the point I'm making is that we carry so many political conflicts from outside. Some of them that should have been in resolved internally by political party structures. The best example in my case is uh, the Migori, Migori County where in uh, one particular constituency there were about 16 petitions before reaching uh, the, 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 the polling day. Uh, people swing and counter-swing, people swing and counter-swing from the party tribunal to the political party from back and forth in a manner that actually didn't make sense and wasted, uh, wasted voters' uh, uh, confidence in the whole process because even at the end, I think the ballots had different candidates, if I'm not wrong. You know? that, those are some of the issues I'm saying we need to start reflecting upon and glad will maybe the next, uh, the next uh, uh, workshop should be on some of the issues that uh, we, 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 we are dealing with. There should have also been a full-day uh, meeting in order to uh, synthesize some of the elections. So the last point to make is, um, I, I, I think, proportional representation. Lesotho's context is very different from everybody else. Lesotho's proportional representation produces one party with everything. Let's, I will not buy you lunch now. The last point is, I, I think uh, we need to know that in every election moment, there are informal power actors who are more powerful than the faces you see anywhere. We have never been able to do a mapping of who are these informal power actors, who move things 
in a manner that actually changes things the way you were. That's where the electoral commission chairman may not be his own man anywhere, anywhere in, in Africa. Uh, they stand for many other interests, and those are the interests that we need to map out, understand them, and ask ourselves how do we deal with them at uh, 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 different uh, uh, times. Let me stop there and say that uh, uh, this is an interesting um, a workshop that should have been a whole day uh, for us to synthesize some of the issues, but I think we need to stop where uh, people's governor, Mother Karua, left by saying we can actually manage elections at the, uh, at the local level ourselves as citizens. That's the best way of improving trust in each other and to improving trust in the vote itself because at the end of the day in a polling station, if it's managed by the locals themselves, if you mess the entire your family suffers in generations to come. And that way then we start building trust in the elections and in the vote itself and it will start counting. But without trust in the vote, the elections will continue generating conflict and tensions that we have. We need to see how to improve trust. That's the next thing. Thank you so much. Um uh, Karuti. Um, I would be doing injustice to this uh, discussion if I were to try to summarize it uh, but into a few points. But I do want to add on the issue of judicialization that uh, while, yes, the courts are the place where justice and rights must be uh, pressed and upheld, I think the situation we have in Kenya is because all other institutions have failed. The court is not the place of last resort but of first resort, as your, your example of uh, Migori County uh, uh, was showing. And that places a burden on the court which uh, politicizes it and, and, and ultimately... Um, weakens it. Not that they should shy away from their responsibility to uphold the law, but if Parliament is, has gone rogue, if the executive uh, also, um, uh, you know, is not fulfilling its role, it's not surprising that people would run to that one institution that looks as if it's done something to reform uh, itself and clean up its act and, and actually make some quite bold decisions. So, um, I think uh, in closing, I want to thank you all very much. This has been a fascinating discussion, organized at short notice. Uh, Karuti, I agree we should have held it longer, but uh, we have done the best we could, and it's not the last time we shall do it. Next time we shall try to do it in Harare or somewhere else. <laughs> uh, and so I want to uh, thank you all. I mean... Some of the issues that have come out is, is really, uh, it's not about more and more and more expensive equipment. It's about uh, software. It's about also deconcentrating power, deconcentrating the power that accrues to the presidency, decentralizing processes so that people have more control over them and over each other, building, strengthening institutions, uh, and also taking a fundamental look at how our democracies function, rather than just what uh, Simeka called the distributive element, look at the constitutive element, the element that builds up the state, what does our state look like? Who makes it up? What are the relations? How do we break the conspiracies that lead to um, what minor called uh, repetitive civilian coups? And above all, the question was raised that we must look at ourselves, uh, our level of integrity, the level of integrity in our politics, we were told. Um, by Martha Karua that uh, both the opposition and the, and the um, incumbents rig 
The only difference is the capacity and the control over institutions. Uh, but they all rig. And we, Peter pointed out, also may rig in terms of our preferred political outcomes rather than taking a more dispassionate look at how uh, we're actually going to get uh, uh, processes to call out um, to call out our uh, governments and politicians when they're behaving badly. The question of evidence was raised by Karuti, saying that evidence is becoming ever less important uh, in, in our politics, and that may be true. I think that's true internationally. We, we discuss that every day when Donald Trump's uh, lie meter goes up again. Uh, but I did, I'm using just that example to introduce a report that we've we finalized sometime uh, recently, but it's about, the report looks at the scrutiny of the presidential vote in the fresh elections in Kenya. And so uh, it does this on an evidence basis, and we've been producing these as civil society in the Kurayangu, Sautiyangu coalition, my, my vote, my voice. Uh, and so, uh, you know, people were asking, how do you engage the system in order, the elections, in order to make sure they're better? We have done our modest bit. And so I'd like um, you all to make sure you go away with a copy of this report. It hasn't been launched, uh, and it will be soon in the context of further deliberations on the way the elections were con uh, conducted. And it contains um, the sort of evidence which um, may be presented to the court next Wednesday by the um, by the opposition in Zimbabwe. So make sure to go away with a copy of unanswered questions and uh, we, look, we will be producing uh, a conference report or policy paper, uh, a discussion paper on these proceedings. We've been taking notes. Our um, talented young people from the African Leadership Center, some of them are masters uh, candidates, some of them are doctoral candidates, and um, they will be producing a record of, of this meeting. And we will have a podcast, uh, which we'll, we'll also uh, disseminate over um, social media. So we want to thank you very, very much in the name of uh, AFRICOG and of the African Leadership Center. Um, and uh, and uh, we will keep you informed of uh, any future developments. Thank you for listening to Public Debate on the ALC Pan-African Radio. For this and other programs, please visit our website at alcpanafricanradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Radio ALC and on Facebook at African Leadership Center. You're listening to the ALC Africa Radio.